Um, so I am going to uh, start by calling item two, which is our OCO uh, fund annual report. Is and we don't have quorum. Oh, wait, sorry. We don't have quorum. Yeah, we're gonna take the informational items so we don't do roll or anything because we don't have quorum. Not even the land acknowledgement? Um, yeah, actually we can do the land acknowledgement. Thank you. Um, so we acknowledge that we're on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatusha Lone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula, as the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions. The Ramatusha Lone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatush community, and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Thank you so much. Awesome, with that, we're gonna move into our fiscal 22-23 um, OCO Fund annual report, and I believe I'm gonna turn it over to Ivy. So Ivy, if you would. Okay, we don't need to do roll call. No, just okay. go ahead. And let me actually. Okay, so okay, so good afternoon, committee. Um, as you know, we published our fiscal year 22-23 annual report yesterday. So um, I'm just gonna talk a little bit about how to navigate the site and some of the key takeaways from the report that we did. So um, just to start, the controller's office is responsible for the administration of the Our City, Our Home uh, Oversight Fund. Um, and so as part of that responsibility, we report on a few things, um, specifically the use and the impact of the fund. So. Okay. Um, I'm so used to watching people up here, now it's me. <laughs> okay, um, so yeah, uh, as I said, the controller's office is responsible for um, reporting on the uses and the impact of the fund, and so that's what is laid out here in the fiscal year 22-23 annual report. Um, some of the key takeaways are um, how the city budgeted and expended the funds over a three-year period. And we go into depth on um, expenditures for fiscal year 22-23, of course. Um, and then secondly, we look at uh, the impact of the uses of the fund. Um, and we do that through looking at capacity and services that were added. And lastly, we take a look at how the, um, the households that were served, we look at the data um, of the people who are experiencing homelessness or at risk of experiencing homelessness. So that is usually the number of people account or um, the demographics of that population. So first off, um, I'm gonna go into the fund. Over the 22-23 fiscal year, um, $295.7 million were spent for the fund. Um, these expenditures have been continuing to increase year by year since the beginning of the fund, which is promising. Um, and that is definitely related to um, 
these programs trans transitioning from planning phases into implementation phases. Uh, secondly, I, I also want to point out that there is a continued um, revenue shortfall that the controller's office has identified, and we will have the budget um, administration division speak a little bit more on that after this presentation. But if you would like to read more about it, this is like the entry page. This is the executive summary. And as you can see, the stuff I just talked about is recapped here. Um, and you can also navigate to each respective um, service area to see specifically about expenditures, population served, outcomes, all of that data. Um, and so as an example, I'm just going to show you the permanent housing page. So up at the top, um, on each of these pages, you can navigate back to the table of contents or to a different page that covers a service area. But as you can see on the right-hand side, we have um, a list of different areas that you can navigate to, including the spending on programs, implementation, um, and more information on the household served, including um, outcome data and demographic data. Um, so going back to the actual report, the executive summary, sorry. Um, for implementation and services, um, the fund was, was used to support over 27,000 households. Um, and there were over 1,000 units of capacity that were added over the last year. Um, our report also goes into um, specifically how, let's see, let me go. Yeah, so it also breaks down um, not just capacity added, but it also discusses capacity that was pre-existing and sustained over the fiscal year. So um, although 1,000 units of capacity were added over last year, uh, over, I believe it is, yeah, over 4,000 units of capacity were sustained um, during fiscal year 22-23. So for public, um, sorry, for permanent housing specifically, uh, let's take a look at what that looks like for capacity added. So permanent housing is unique in that it does have a breakdown for each of the uh, types of households served. We break it down by all households, adults, families, and youth. Um, but there's also a breakdown comparing um, fiscal year 21-22 data with the more recent 22-23 data. And you can see that we cover capacity that was added each year as well as the total capacity that was sustained. Um, going back to the executive summary, um, going let's see. So households served is another um, good indicator of like implementation and uses of the fund. The fund was used um, to support over 27,000 households. And um, homeless pre homelessness prevention actually served the most households with uh, over 13,000 households being served. Secondly was mental health. Um, their programs uh, served over 8,000 individuals and mental health is unique in that um, clients served is, is the measure that we use there as opposed to households um, like the other service areas. Uh, but for the other two service areas for permanent housing, there were um, just over 2,000 
households served, and most of those were accounted for in uh, scattered sites um, programs. And then lastly, for shelter and hygiene, over 2,700 households were served, and most of those households were served through programs um, under their temporary shelter programs. And as mentioned before, you can go to each of these individual pages and see those breakdowns. So going into the demographics, this is a key uh, feature that we wanted to focus on in the report. We know that the committee has a strong interest in racial equity, so we did include on the executive summary a breakdown um, of the ethnic and racial identities of households served. As you can see, we have um, a dashboard that you can look at that kind of breaks it down, both by program, I believe. Yeah, the, the individual ones will break it down by program, but this is the general um, analysis of all service areas combined. And so the takeaway here is that um, we know from the PIT data that African Americans specifically are overrepresented in the homeless population. And what our data is showing us, at least um, this early evidence that we're getting so far from the data, is showing that these programs are, are serving um, that same ratio of, of population, which is a good thing. Um, we want that. And so with these populations, um, if you go down, you can see like permanent housing served 48% uh, of their households served identified as black, African-American, or African, which is a significant amount. Um, same with shelter and hygiene. We had 32% identifying as black, African, or American, or African. I also want to note that um, up here at the top, we break down Latina households. Um, and for each service area, what percentage was served? Um, mental health did, we see, we're seeing gaps in the data there. Um, only 14% of households um, identified as Latina being served in mental health programs that were OCO funded. Uh, this is compared to the PIT data, which shows about 30% of uh, people experiencing homelessness identify as Latina. So there is some gap in the data there, um, but I know that their department is working on kind of looking at the variability of tracking this. Each different program can track uh, racial and ethnic identity um, in different ways. They have different categorizations. So I know they're working on getting more consistent with that and exploring why there are these gaps in data for these programs. Um, let's see. So going down, we also have um, our outcomes section. And so outcomes for households served, we did track um, positive outcomes. And of course, each respective service area has their own unique definition for what a positive outcome is. But across the board, um, they were pretty positive. We were seeing some generally positive outcomes, which is promising. Permanent housing, um, had 97% of their households served reporting a positive outcome. So for uh, permanent housing, what, what we would define as a positive outcome is whether they were still in the program at the close of fiscal year or if they had exited the program to their own uh, permanent housing. 
Secondly, we also have the homelessness prevention percent. Um, what, that rate was pretty good as well. 76% were reporting a positive outcome. Um, how we defined a positive outcome for prevention services was, um, let's see, yeah, same. Retaining housing um, so that they were able to keep their housing or they found um, a safe indoor solution to their, um, their housing crisis at the time that they entered the program. Shelter and hygiene um, has a pretty significantly low rate of positive outcomes at 16%. Um, HSH is exploring this. I know that there, there are some large gaps in the data regarding just tracking where clients go when they exit these prevention, these shelter and hygiene prevention, um, sorry, shelter and hygiene programs. The shelter and hygiene programs are generally low barrier, so um, there's definitely some effort uh, going, going forward to figuring out how we can track, better track uh, the destinations of these people once they are leaving these, um, these low barrier programs that they're entering. Um, and then, lastly, we have mental health where we, we note that it's unavailable. You can read more about mental health's client outcomes. They actually have their own collection of dashboards that they published this year. And they also have um, some dashboards that break down like sort and skirt those programs, um, what their, their positive outcome rate was, as well as more details on, on those clients that were served. Um, but I know that they are also looking into a way to, to track positive outcomes that can be um, shared back in our report that we're sharing out. So, sorry if that was a little fast, but um, everything that you need to explore and hopefully get your questions answered, you can find here um, on the page. We have our annual report ready to go. It's the first option when you do um, land on the OCO page. So, um, yeah, um, I believe we'll take questions afterwards, but we can also do it right now if you need. What's your preference, Ivy? Uh, yes, we can take some questions now. Okay. You want to, Member Friedenbach? I have a few questions as well. Could we, could we uh, look at the housing outcomes? I just want to. Can we keep it up on the screen? Yeah. Uh, Household serves, could we, um, is there, is the? Outcomes, you said? Um, household served in OCO programs, I guess. Um, and is it broken down? When, is there a way to go into the permanent housing and list off exactly what is talked about there? Uh, into the permanent housing specifically? Yeah. yeah. So um, up at the top here is where we have like the links to navigate there, but I do have permanent housing already open um, on this tab. Okay. So did you want to look at the household served for permanent housing? Yeah. Well, yeah. Just I'm, So you had said there's over 4,000 that have, would be served. So that 2,272... Yeah, I think it's the capacity, the total capacity that was sustained. And I believe that was across all programs, like not just first. permanent housing. And this 2200 number is the number of people served in this, the year that In this fiscal covered. year, yeah. correct. In this fiscal year, okay. Yeah. So did we, because I know in the, some of the data that we got before, there were some misses, 
And so like the housing out of MOHCD, for example, um, was not counted in the quarterly report. And then we didn't get the, um, the, for some reason, the acquisitions weren't included. So I just wanted to make sure that it was comprehensive and included um, uh, the housing that is outside of DHSH. This data is for last fiscal year. So any housing that was OCO funded um, that was operating last fiscal year um, should have information about the household served in that housing and the sort of count of its capacity in our data set. Some of the housing you know, uh, may have been purchased last year, but it didn't open to operation until the next year, so we wouldn't have included it. Um, some things that were kind of towards the end of the year, for example, but to the extent that a program was operating and serving clients last fiscal year, we've, we've incorporated that data. Uh, the MoCD program within housing is called family subsidy. It's the yeah, the family, last rent family rental subsidy. Okay. It's also, there is also a family rental subsidy program in HSH. Those are both represented okay. um, to the extent that, you know, whatever many households or, or units were. Okay, provided. okay. And then, so in this report, does it also have the projected number of units that are coming online in 23-24? No. No. Okay. So we would, in order to get there, we would have to look at the... Um, the budget that was passed with the details there? Um, the February budget versus actuals will show how much money is spent this year. So we have a plan for February as we do every year. So in February, we do the six month report. We will provide budget versus actuals information and departments will present on their implementation to date um, at the February meeting. So they would be able to um, provide you with information about what uh, progress has occurred since July. Okay, um, thank you. Other members? Um, go ahead. Okay. Um, being new to the committee, um, is this format... Can you speak into the mic, please? I'm sorry. Being new to the committee, is this format um, parallel to previous reports? Yes. Yeah. Great. Great. I'm just looking for ease of comparison. Thank you. Um, uh, let's see. Okay. What I wanted to talk about is more around like how are we disseminating this information and making sure that the community is aware of the report. Like I know people can watch this meeting and get it that way, but we've gotten a lot of calls in the past from community members who wanted it to be disseminated like in other ways. Um, and I don't know if that's something too like as a committee that we should be talking about because they're, yeah, it seems like a comms type of conversation, like communications. Um, and we've had ideas in the past when people were trying to take Prop C funds for other uses and change the legislation. And so I think I kind of want to get ahead of that now that we have this report and just put it on our radar. We don't necessarily have to talk about it right now, but um, how do we disseminate reports other than just talking about it in this meeting? Uh, www.sf.gov slash OCO. <laughs> it's available on the homepage. So just but saying that out loud. There, for the ether. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I mean, how up to date it is, it's, it's hard. You know, we keep it as up to date as we can, and it may not be capturing everyone, but um, we do distribute it to everybody that was on our, you know, distribution list that has expressed interest in the community. Oh, good. Including okay. public, members of the public, not so like, organizations. Um, everybody who attended our um, community meetings and... If they're signed up to get... 
to get okay. notification. We do public notification. The committee is welcome to forward the announcement that you should have hopefully received in your inbox um, about the publication, because we do that wide distribution from the controller's office. Um, so it's once it's public, so definitely forward to all of your networks um, to distribute I, further. I don't think that's what member D'Antonio has in mind. No, I think we're trying well, to. I don't know. I mean, I don't think we've ever come up with a solution for this. And so I don't know what that looks like. I mean, originally we wanted a website that was specifically outside of SFGov that was a proxy website, but we obviously we've realized we can't do that. Um, but I don't know. It's just something for us all to think about. And for others who are listening, if you call in and have ideas, let us know. I'll get myself on the stack, but thank you, uh, Vice Chair D'Antonio, and I do agree that, you know, and I think it's part of our charge, too, as committee members to kind of think about dissemination, and we don't have a community impact liaison uh, right now, um, but we definitely want to get this to everyone who participated in our um, listening sessions. Um, I believe, Laura, we still have that list available from all of our listening sessions, um, so I can support with that effort. If I get the list, I could send it to folks as the chair. Um, also, just do we have the ability to make hard copies of the proposal to give to some of our community partners that we know are really interested in this information, um, who are funded in these different categories, as well as our partners at DPH and HSH um, and elsewhere, um, some of the hospitals and other folks in places where we, where we, they would want this information. So just thinking through that, um, I'm happy to work on that, but I don't know if we have hard copies of the report, but I'm happy no. to send out an email to that list. This report was created as a series of five web pages. So um, for accessibility um, of uh, the dashboards and the data. So it is sort of, uh, and some of these web pages have uh, interactive inf information on them. So that that's, you could. So getting people to the website is really key. Yeah, so they're able to interact and kind of um, get the information they're looking for. Um, there's lots of content here you could print, but it would be, be a, it would be very long. <laughs> well, so. just like the executive summary, I'm thinking, like maybe the executive summary or something a little more abbreviated that we can get out in hard copy to folks who may not, you know, maybe our community, folks who are directly impacted that may want to see this information. Um, just trying to think through it because we don't have a community impact uh, liaison right now, and that kind of falls, I guess, in my office, so I'm happy to, like, blast this out on email, and if there's an executive summary or something abbreviated that I could help to kind of distribute um, to key partners who are more not as web-based, um, happy to do that as well. Yeah, um, we, we can definitely talk more about um, just comparing what, what our distribution list was and making sure that it goes out to the audiences that you would like it to go out to. Um, and then in terms of, yeah, I, a hard copy, I think that's a great suggestion, especially if it was just like the executive summary. Um, the trickiness just comes down to making sure it's it's meeting accessibility standards, but that's definitely something we can look into. Yeah, and I would think translation as yeah. well for the hard copies, but yes, we can talk more offline. My other question was about unduplicated counts, mm -hmm. um, because I imagine that folks are traveling between these different systems, and whether that be behavioral health with HSH and other crossover, like has there been any analysis around Unduplicated and who's sort of going in between the different systems? Yeah, yeah, definitely. We um, each each of these dashboards. I'll also just show you guys up here. So if you are exploring on your own, you can see. But each dashboard, um, if they have corresponding data notes, have a data notes section that um, 
breaks down what was going on, um, just some caveats with the data, what's included, what isn't, um, anything that may have come up. But in terms of duplicated and unduplicated, for the most part, we tried to go, um, we tried to get numbers that were unduplicated. Um, and so it, it was more of an accurate, you know, depiction of person served. But there are different programs that we were limited, and you'd have to like look at each one individually to see. There's no data that's unduplicated across service areas. So the service areas could be duplicated. Um, so within service areas, there is some um, element of unduplication coming from the departments, um, but not across service areas. Yeah, I say this because I know that, you know, Epic and other efforts that have been made to try and see who's traveling between systems and identifying households and really getting drilling down to see like specifically what's that household being served by multiple mm -hmm. systems. I believe the city and county was working on this several years ago to really get a clear picture of who's being served by the whole myriad of services in the city and county because sometimes, you know, folks are traveling between multiple programs, multiple department systems and just to really kind of be able to put your arms around that household and provide additional support. So yeah. um, I don't know if that effort ever got more. I know Epic rolled out and that's like crosstalk between different health systems, but I don't know if there's crosstalk that's been developed between HSH, behavioral health and other departments, so, which I think would be helpful. I can take that. Um, so that work is external to this work. Um, so the OCO annual reporting is really related to the funding from OCO to specific programs, so it's not really showing the entire system. Right. It's showing OCO-funded programs and their um, utilization and, and capacity. So there is work, you know, happening external to, you know, the, in, amongst the broader systems around yeah. how to track and manage that. We haven't integrated that. Yeah, I'm into just talking this. about integration. Yeah. So I know that that's not our work. I'm just saying that that's a data capacity that we can think about once the city gets there, or if the city is there, I don't know, to kind of layer onto what's funded by us. So I know that's not our purview, I'm just saying our data capacity, and we don't have a data officer as well, um, which is something we need to fill, our data officer don't role. We have a, oh wait, we did, we elected our data have... officer, yay! <laughs> New... Well, our newly onboarded data officer, thank you. Um, so this is something that we could talk about with our data officer. I think that um, having worked uh, for um, HSH for many years. I think it's an ongoing issue, but I, I want to underscore what was being said, that it wouldn't be in reports like this, because this is so focused on specific funding, that it wouldn't pick up people who are served in one of these programs and then f in another program that's funded in a different way. But um, there has been ongoing discussion, I, ca I can't say I'm up to date on it uh, now, uh, with how to look at the person being served by what they're using across systems. Um, and I think we're primarily talking about um, Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing and Department of Public Health um, with a few other, you know, smaller components. But I think that was part, that is part of what is being looked at um, with uh, the, the larger data tracking systems. But it's a question we can pose to those departments. And my apologies, we do have a data officer, so thank you. Can I? Um, <laughs> yes, Member yeah. Friedenbach. Yeah, can we go back to the summary page, please? Thanks, Ivy. Um, so, I, you know, um, one of the reasons that this is so important um, and really appreciate you guys' work on this is that, 
you know, there's just a lot of misinformation out there about homelessness, about what the city's doing around homelessness, and um, and what the places where we're having a lot of success are at risk, and our situation could get a lot worse um, in terms of the humanitarian crisis we continue to face. So um, I think, you know, a piece of this is um, that, you know, the the city, you know, isn't really great about having information presented in a way that's really simple for the public to understand. Um, and often the electeds and, you know, some of the policymakers that are appointed by electeds um, put out a lot of misinformation um, for political gain and there's a lot of blaming of homeless people, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just, it's kind of a, it creates a lot of issues. So I think as much transparency is really important in making it easier for people to understand. I wish I brought my computer because I'm like so handicapped right now. I can't really look at this report at all. Um, but um, uh, but I, I think one of the things that I just wanna comment on is that the, um, the shelter outcomes um, being so low, in particular, I just, I just wanna point that out. I'm really concerned about that. Um, and I don't think we're doing a good job making sure that people who are entering shelter um, are ending up at the end of that stay in housing. And um, we have an opportunity while they're in shelter um, because getting housing is so complicated and the bureaucracy around it and the paperwork and all that stuff, it's really, really difficult to navigate. And so you kind of have this missed opportunity while people are in shelter to try to get them into housing because you know, it's not gonna be a situation like it is from a lot of folks out there on the streets where they finally get all their paperwork together and then the city comes and takes their property and throws it away and they lose it and they have to start from scratch and all that stuff that constantly is happening to folks. So um, I just wanna, just wanna put that out. And then I'm also a little bit concerned about the um, low prevention numbers on African-American community um, that were listed there. Um, we know that um, from the Homeless Oversight Commission, um, you know, and from work that um, we've been doing with the Housing Rights Committee, um, that there's these huge disparities in eviction um, already um, among African-Americans in coming out of supportive housing. Um, and then we also know when we look at the private market, there's also disparities of evictions among African-Americans in the private market. Um, a lot of times because of real estate speculation targeting um, impoverished community for gentrification and um, trying to um, push people out of poor neighborhoods so that they can turn those units over and make big profits. So I think that, that um, that's really concerning and I think that we, that's another area that I would love to see some focus on at some point around um, really trying to do more targeted prevention um, that is um, really trying to uh, really trying to connect with the African-American community and uh, prevent displacement in that community. Um, and, uh, you know, anytime you see those big racial disparities, you know, obviously because of the historical context, um, you know, those are, those are big red flags. So I just wanted to make those two comments. Thank you. Any other comments from members? I just would, because this was just published yesterday, so I would encourage people, and I'm, you know, don't have the detail, can't look at the detail either, but I think, I encourage the committee and others to um, 
look at it to develop their questions because I think that will help us focus on what we do. Speaking to, you know, Jennifer, some of your amazing immediate um, red flags. We need to look at those and understand one, how the data was collected, and two, what it says about where we might focus. Um, and I don't think we're going to pull that off in a summary, and I thank you for the summary, but I think what we need to do is review this separate from necessarily in committee, but gather the questions and then begin to look at the detail. Because um, I know you mentioned that some of the shelter outcomes were in question in your oversight presentation, so we want to understand that as well because it is a very low number. So. Um, I would suggest that that's the approach we take um, because seeing those red flags gives us a place then to focus our attention. And I, I would add that, you know, the departments are aware too now with this data coming out and they're, they're doing their work as well. Um, and so I think it's, it's just helpful to, yeah, I'm glad you all are interested in this and we'll hopefully take the time to do a deeper dive because there's a lot of data. <laughs> um, and hopefully it's, it's um, the visuals and stuff can make it a little bit more digestible. Um, but I, I do think it's, it's a helpful place to start, at least off with this, um, you know, with our retreat, uh, just because it, it can kind of inform you guys going forward where, where you want to put your focus towards. I, I would also, I didn't see the detail of the blast yet. Um, if we send it out to departments, I would request that we request that they send it out to their lists. That doesn't reach some of the people we want to reach that don't have ready access to computers, but it would expand the dispersion of this um, quite a bit. And so I think we need to ask all departments that are related to this work to also spread this summary report, um, and then they can direct questions back to the committee. Definitely. All right. Any other questions? No, I think we're good. Thank you so much, Ivy, for all your work and for this presentation. I think now we have an update on the fiscal 23, fiscal 24, uh, OCO fund revenue. And so I invite Yuri Hardin and Carol Liu to join us. Welcome. Thank you. My name is Yuri Hardin. I'm from Controller's Budget Office. I'm here to give you updates on our forecast on this one. Yeah. I'm going to give you updates on our forecast on homelessness gross, re gross receipt tax, which I will refer to you to as a HDR tax. I'd like to start with the overview. Um, as you know, um, San Francisco business taxes are very volatile, um, and the budgets are based on the available information at that time, so, but the situation is keep changing. So throughout the year, we monitored closely the actual revenue, uh, revenue receipt, tax revenue receipts, and um, as well as all other factors that could impact the tax revenue and update the forecast periodically 
to help the policymakers manage the spending um, against this volatile revenue source. Um, unfortunately, this time, uh, based on what we have learned from last year, um, specifically last year end, we had to bring down our forecast uh, significantly uh, from the prior assumption. The size of the reduction was uh, from 40 million up to 55 million annually. As you know, uh, we have been making uh, downwards adjustments in our forecast. Uh, these are the, these reductions are on top of the reduction that we have made in the prior years. Uh, however, it is uh, important to know that we are in the current uh, forecast, we are not assuming any recession. Um, these reductions are made against the prior assumptions and then uh, not the um, reduction to the prior year actual receipts. So um, as you will see later in the slides that um, our current forecast for fiscal 24, the current year forecast, uh, current year's forecast is right now is actually a little higher than last year's actual. Uh, so we will keep monitoring the actual receipt and then uh, keep updating forecast and then next spring we'll bring you a revised forecast in time for the next two years budget. I'm gonna talk some of the basics of HDR tax. Um, taking a step back, San Francisco already has a general gross receipts tax that are applied to all the businesses. In November 2018, uh, the voter, voter approved the Prop C, implemented the HDR tax. Um, this tax is additional to the general gross receipts tax that uh, businesses in San Francisco already paying. Um, the, while uh, general gross receipts tax is apl applicable to all businesses, uh, HDR tax is applicable to those businesses with uh, over 50 million in gross receipts. So for example, if a business makes 150 million in gross receipts one year, the first 50 million is gonna be exempt. The HDR tax is gonna be uh, rebated against the remaining 100 million. In terms of rate, um, just like a general gross receipts tax, uh, HDR tax rates differ by industry, as you can see in the table in the slide. Um, as to the taxpayer base, um, because of the threshold of 50 million, uh, HDR taxpayer base is much smaller and then concentrated with uh, big businesses, large business, businesses. Um, in, as an example, in tax year 2022, uh, while general gross receipts taxpayer was over 10,000 businesses, HDR taxpayer was only 358 uh, businesses. So. That will show you. This will show you um, how small the how small the uh, taxpayer taxpayer for the HGR tax. Um, 
One of the consequences for having uh, such a small and concentrated uh, tax base, taxpayer base is that um, tax revenue is going to be very volatile and unpredictable. So some changes in the big uh, businesses can have outsized effect on the overall, business, uh, overall tax revenue for the year. Additionally, uh, last year, we saw a high level of uh, business tax litigation. And when there's a high risk of uh, revenue loss from the litigation, we do not recognize those revenues. And uh, in general, when uh, businesses bring up litigations, they're not uh, appealing the current year tax, but also prior year tax revenue. So in one year for new business, uh, tax litigation, it could have like mul multiple years effect on the one year, for that year. Because of these reasons, um, actual HGR tax came in significantly below budget last two years. In fiscal 22, the actual tax revenue came in 57 million below budget. In fiscal 23, 65 million below budget. Here is uh, our current assumptions, um, comparing with the prior assumptions and the changes between them. As you can see, the changes are significantly, significant reductions. But as uh, I'd like to point out uh, for fiscal 24, we are projecting that um, Revenue is going to come in 255, but this time, this is higher than the prior actual of 248. Um, some of some of the key assumptions that we made in the current projection. Uh, the first one, uh, we are pros we are uh, projecting that. Um, projecting a slow or no growth economic growth in the tax base. In outer years, you see some growth, growth um, but those are from the inflation factors. Second, second we are assuming that um, current level of telecommute is going to continue throughout uh, forecast period. As you know, uh, the higher level of telecommute has a downward effect on the tax revenue. So we will keep monitoring this factor. Lastly, as I mentioned earlier, um, there was significant, uh, there was high level of uh, litigation activities last year, so we lower the tax base to reflect ongoing litigation risk. Here are uh, the list of the upcoming reports um, as we work towards next two years' budgets for fiscal 25 and 26. Um, the most relevant um, report for HDR tax is going to be the five-year financial plan March, oh, or jo a joint report March update. Um, this is going to be the, ba uh, the base of the next two years' budget. Closing. Um, so as, I, as noted in this presentation, we made a significant reduction to our uh, to the, our revenue forecast from the prior assumption. 
So the departments needs to revisit the spending plans to make sure that um, the spending is aligned with uh, our latest forecasted revenue amount for the for the current year as well as the next two years for the budget. Last and the, lastly, I would like to remind you that um, despite this significant significant reductions. Uh, it is, and then this is a, the current forecast is the best estimate that we have based on the information available at this time. However, it is still estimate and anything could happen, any um, unforeseen event could happen and with or without um, recession, uh, our current number could go even go lower. So please bear in mind that. With that happy notes, um, do you have any questions? I see member Friedenbach. Yeah. Um, just clarification, um, going back to slide four, it looked like the actuals for 22-23 was 257.5. Uh, uh, sorry, this one? No, back one to slide four. Mm -hmm. Yeah, slide four, yeah, to see on the Yes. There's a circle on the right with yes. the red that says, that one says 278.6. That was fiscal year 21-22, right? And then the yes. other one says 257.5. Yes. Yeah, and so I'm assuming that's the actual for fiscal year 22-23. And then on the next slide, on slide four, it's got oh. a, a $10 million difference. Is that a typo? Yes, it's typos. I'm sorry. Oh, it's okay. Thank you. I just want to know which was the right one. Sorry. Um 247 is a 247 is the mm -hmm. right one. Okay, cool. Thank you. I have a couple of questions. Um, so you said for the year 2223, there's 350 individual like companies that pay into the fund, right? Yes. Correct. Do we have projections around whether that will go up or down? Like, for example, I know that Visa is purchased or building a building by Mission Rock, and like that probably won't be remote. So like, will that affect the fund going? Like how many more payers do we envision like it in 24, hard. 25, 26, 27? Um, there's also like 50 million threshold. So uh, once it could, that's, it could once the, some businesses could go below the threshold and then totally out of the base or so yeah it is hard to to know like if there's future plans for like leasing up more office space in san francisco because i would assume that's like one of your data points right mm -hmm. yes uh but the, the like 50 million is like really uh you know will make it like a large businesses so Yes, uh, but I don't think it's order. I'm not sure what you think. Sorry, um, Carol Liu, Citywide Revenue Manager. So we don't, um, when we're forecasting, we're not forecasting payer by payer, um, but we, we are forecasting kind of overall the tax base and then growth. And so it kind of, you can in some ways think of the growth factor as encompassing 
whether it's businesses making more money or more payers, either way, it's more dollar signs in the fund. And so, my, um, sorry to interrupt. My impression, and I thought what was said was the increase was based on inflation, not necessarily that more payers were going to pay in. Yeah, we just take the da the. Um, the tax base, which is a dollar value, and we're inflating by various factors that change, increase or decrease. And so our assumptions are 2%, 1%, 3, in the forecast. Um, and those kind of encompass lots of different things that could be like payers coming in, it could be more economic activity, et cetera, but we're not forecasting really at that like line detailed level. Okay. Um, I had a couple other questions. As far as the tax litigation, can you speak more to that? And then um, how long does the litigation usually last? And if they lose, do we still get revenue? Um, yeah, so we can't speak specifically to what, because it's confidential taxpayer information, um, the litigation, but it is a large amount, um, I believe, for this fund, I think it's about a hundred million dollars right now. It might, it might be more. Um, wow. um, in terms of, sorry, another question was how long do they last? So it varies. It depends matter by matter, um, and what the issues are. Okay, there's no like historic average. There's not. It, it really depends. Like some of them are quick, some of them are years. They're often, you know, the ones that the bigger they are, right? They'll typically draw it they out. take longer. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, and then can I add? That was I'd like to add that. Um, oh. So the currently those are on the litigation. Those are we're not recognizing those revenues. So like it's not going to be the. Right, you're not recognized. That's why I'm wondering if in, then in the future it, there's the potential to account for that revenue. Yeah, sorry. So there, it can go either way. So we take our, uh, based on our conversation with the city attorney and the tax collector, um, we are deferring our best understanding of where this might settle. Um, and that could be, the settlement could end up being higher or lower, so it's not necessarily um, once it settles that we get a lot of money, we might we might have guessed exactly right and it would be net neutral. But you that still would don't, you still account for something in the budget? Yes. Okay, got it. I thought it was just zero, like you weren't accounting for the 100 million at all. Oh yeah, we take it to okay. that into account and we take it out of the base, so it's okay. like ongoing. Okay, cool. Awesome, thank you. Member Walden, did you have anything? Um, I'll, I want to give myself a second unless you have something. Um, I was more thinking of in terms of just, if you can go back to slide four as well, um, just the variations for budget to actual. Um, I'm always advocating for us to close that gap between budget to actual because of what we're dealing with and you know, organizations, the community is depending on this fund and making recommendations and forecasting based on what we think is gonna come out of this. And I definitely feel like we're in a very challenging time in our city budget. And so again, I'm, I've said this every time we've had this presentation, if we can try in terms of our, you know, the inputs in terms of forecasting, if we can try to kind of close that gap as much as possible, it just makes our job a lot easier. And I'm sure it makes departments easier as well. And I'm sure you're hearing this all across the board because it's a very challenging time in the city over the next couple of years. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to speak on 
that piece, and then also to um, Vice Chair D'Antonio's point about the downtown economic recovery plan, is there any crosstalk, and I'm all about crosstalk too, so you'll hear me say that as well in terms of systems, is there any conversations with the downtown recovery folks who are working on the downtown recovery plan because our funding is so tied to that good work? Um, I know the Department of Workforce and Economic Development, I know there's new leadership there, I don't know if there's been any conversations with the controller's office around the work that they're doing just to be able to sort of think about what the future of downtown is going to look like because that really impacts us and I'm very worried about future revenues for our fund so just curious if there's any conversations that are happening if you guys are part of those conversations with the downtown recovery group because um, that's our funding that we're depending on um, yeah we, I think we totally share that concern as well and it's a big um you know, it's a big question for the future of the city, uh, as well as our revenues. Um, in terms of our, our role in those conversations, I, I, there are representatives, I believe, various people in the controller's office and the controller themselves um, involved in those conversations. Um, I know um, there are some tax breaks um, that I think come, came out of the work with OEWD and the downtown kind of activation, that, that suite of policy um, initiatives that are being assumed in our general fund gross receipts um, tax forecast, but they don't impact this one specifically, but um, it is a good idea and we, sh I mean, we can think about um, how that might relate to our forecast um, in our upcoming um, March cycle. No, thank you for that, because I think to what Vice Chair D'Antonio was pointing out, Visa, Ikea, maybe others, big employers, big big money folks who are coming into our area. The highest category of like point, right? Like financial yeah. financials, yeah. Financial services. So I mean, it's very much connected. If there's folks that we're attracting to downtown, they're going to have their workers downtown. It just all connects. And so would love the controller. I'm sure Ben is at the table, um, but just would love to hear more um, from you guys on sort of how that could influence some of these um, projections. So thank you so much. And I know this is hard work. I mean, of course you guys are brilliant. <laughs> I wouldn't assume right. to be able to do this kind of forecasting. I'm just thinking very high level about who's in our downtown space. And again, it's still very much in slow recovery mode, which is really worrisome for us. Yeah. Thanks for that feedback. Thank you so much. Anything else? Okay, thank you so much. All right, so I believe we're going to take public comment. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment in person, please line up at the podium now. Each person will have two minutes to speak. I know when, yeah, that's what she did. There are no in-person public comments. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment over the phone, please call 415-655-0001. Enter access code 2664-414-0933, then press pound and then pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you will have two minutes. Moderator, do we have any over the phone public comments? 
There are no over-the-phone public comments at this time. Thank you so much, Ivy. Um, I just want to let the uh, public know we still at this time do not have quorum. Um, we are potentially waiting on one member to join us, um, so we are still not officially called to order, and we can officially not vote at this time. So we're going to proceed with the rest of our um, presentations until we get quorum for our vote that we have today for the TAE proposed budget recommendations. So I'm going to invite actually Cynthia Najendra up to join us, um, and we'll just go into the citywide strategic plan on homelessness and kick that off, and then hopefully we get quorum and can go back to item three. So thank you, Director Najendra. Uh, do you? And, and would you want to present on the TAE as well? Or? Yeah, we can present on TAE first. I just want to just recognize that we do not have quorum at this time. And I apologize to the public. We have a member that is ill um, that we were not anticipating to be out. And then we have another member who should be joining us shortly. We're hoping that they can get here as soon as possible. <laughs> So we can take this very important vote. But at least we can take a public comment on the Tay item as well, um, if folks are, are for time purposes. Um, actually, could we do that first, uh, Director Najendra? Um, we'll take public comment on the um, TAE program planning at this time, because I know folks are, have impacted schedules, so we'll take public comment on that item, and then we'll come back to your presentation. Welcome, welcome, please. And if you want to line up against the side here, we'll just take public comment. It's rambling. Thank you. Um, okay, I'm just looking at the... Okay. Tense of my language here. Um, hi, I'm Marnie Regan. Um, she, her pronouns. I'm with Larkin Street Youth Services. I'm also co-chair of HESPA and the TASE subcommittee of HESPA. I want to extend our sincere gratitude to the OCO Oversight Committee and to HSH for giving the TAE providers the opportunity to collectively strategize about how to best program the remaining one-time ongoing and acquisition housing funds for transitional age youth. TAE providers, in partnership with each other and with the young people we serve, developed this proposal to provide a range of housing options for 158 young people fleeing domestic violence, moving on from transitional housing, or exiting supportive housing. This means that 158 young people can become or remain housed so they can heal from trauma, continue building their life skills, and pursue their dreams. 158 young people who will grow into strong and independent adults, making our city a better place for future transitional age youth. Thank you for voting to give these 158 young people the safety, stability, and support they deserve. Thanks. We'll take the next public commenter. Hi. So... Good afternoon, my name is Miguel Carrera. I work in the Coalition on Homelessness. And I've been involved for a very long time in this uh, campaign, you know, to make sure of children or youth children have an opportunity uh, to have a decent place to live. So I think it's um, being a father uh, to kids, teenagers, so 
and seeing my kids, you know, have a place to live. And I am formerly homeless, you know, so which had the opportunity to overcome is what I want to see for the, for the youth to have an opportunity. And, take, and we can give you the opportunity because we have the funding. So, you know, so we had the funding, we, had, we win the proposition C, and we know for sure these kids want to be super happy when they have a place to live. So it's an opportunity that these kids never become homeless again, you know, so because we have money for preventing to these kids never coming again homeless. And this is what we're looking for, you know, so we have so many, many, many youth and children outside in the streets, and we don't want all children outside. We want to keep in, inside all children, right? We want all children to be, become the future of San Francisco, become the leaders of San Francisco. We're seeing these kids right here, like me right here. One day we want to retire, we want to be going, but we need these kids right here, you know? So we, we need to give you the opportunity. Thank you so much for voting and supporting all children, and we need to do one more for them. Thank you. Thank you so much. Next commenter, please. Good afternoon, members of the committee. My name is Adam Varokwa, and I'm the Senior Tain Navigator at the SFLGBT Center. We are here today to thank and ask OCA to continue its support of traditional aged youth, also known as Tay Housing Services. Last year, the 2022 Homeless Pitch Survey showed that unaccompanied minors made up 95% of the household breakdown of people living without a parent or guardian. As this committee prioritizes housing underserved communities, like BIPOC and LGBTQ people, Let's reinforce the prioritization for the 31% of the 18 to 24-year-olds in those groups who are experiencing homelessness for the first time in their lives. Many of these youths are survivors of violence, kicked out or fleeing their homes, communities, or countries from ongoing homophobia and transphobia. Here they access the city's great services for the Tay population, and we would like for these services to continue. We ask the committee to protect the collective investment of Tay Housing Services by acquiring new small buildings for Tay supportive housing and continuing to fund ongoing services in new Tay buildings. Additionally, we ask for more rapid rehousing slots for Tay impacted by violence and those le leaving transitional housing, along with more flexible subsidies for Tay exiting supportive housing. We ask and thank again OCA to continue support of youth without housing and to increase services for Tay wherever possible. We would like to thank the committee for taking the time to hear us today and for your support. And thank you to HSH for your continued support as well. Have a good day. Thank you so much. Next commenter. Hi, uh, Sherilyn Adams, Executive Director at Larkin Street Youth Services. I'm just going to associate my comments with the previous comments. It's just so super important that we identify and have programming, and this has been a collective effort of TAY providers, of young people in HSH, and it is really important that this vote happened today and that we're able to really have a clear plan for the funding for the young people. We know we know what happens when there's not a clear plan. We know if the funding's not programmed, it gets uh, swept. And we can't have that happen for our young people for all the reasons that we know. So thanks. Thank you so much. Is there any in-person public comment? Additional public comment? Okay, Ivy. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment over the phone, please call 415-655-0001, enter access code 2664-414-2664-414-2664-414-2664-414-2664-414-2664-414-2664-414-2664-414-2664-414-2664-414-2664-414-2664-414-2664-414-2664-414-2664-414-2664-414-2664-414-2664-414-2664-414-
0933, then press pound, and then pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star 3 to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you will have two minutes. Moderator, do we have any over-the-phone public comments? <coughs> we have two callers. Hello, Commissioners. Uh, my name is Shiva Bandiva. I'm a policy associate at GLIDE. GLIDE is a proud member of HESPA. We respectfully ask for a yes vote in funding these investments towards a range of housing options that will support the process of moving our transitional aged youth off the streets and into housing. As someone who has experienced youth homelessness at a time when resources were scarce, I greatly appreciate the amount of dollars in this proposal that will be invested in addressing homelessness for a total of 158 youth. We want to thank our city partners at HSH for being inclusive, for giving us the time and space to come up with strategies that accommodate the many lives of unhoused kids in the city. We thank our providers for the amazing work that they do each and every day, making sure that our youth are provided with the resources that meet their needs for a better quality of life. Please continue to to work toward solutions that reduce state homelessness, especially in black and brown communities. Thank you. Hi, Commissioners. This is Ilsa Lund. I'm sure, sorry I'm not there in person. Uh, I uh, also work for Larkin Street. I just want to join my uh, colleagues in uh, urging a yes vote for this uh, really thoughtful plan. I love to point out that a fully functioning youth homelessness response system is one where nobody stays together. And we really work together as a community of providers to um, uh, propose an allocation plan that creates flow through the system. It gets more young people housed, but it also helps them move on to their next thing. It helps get buoyed exits out of transitional housing into subsidized housing. It also helps young people um, exit supportive housing into flex subsidies. It's really smart um, and it goes a long way, not just to uh, toward preventing future adult chronic homelessness, but um, creating as, as highly functioning a, a youth homelessness system as possible. So um, thank you, and I do hope we're able to uh, get that yes vote today. Ivy, does this additional comments? Or? There's one last comment, one last caller. I'm not sure if that was them. Yes, can you hear me? We can yes. hear you now. Hi, this is Bonnie Preston, one of your commission, um, one of your committee members, and I'm just so sorry that I'm not there today. Um, the COVID finally got me after three years, I guess. I've been exposed. I haven't actually gotten it. My husband uh, got a positive test today, and I'm not, I'm also feeling flu symptoms, so it's not great. But um, just wanted to um, say I'm really sorry not to be there in person, and um, but I have been following along um, with the presentations and look forward to digging into these issues more um, with you all. 
in the new year. So, um, or if we need to have another meeting before the new year. So just let me know. But thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mayor President. I just um, want to interrupt to just, hopefully we can get some advice from the city attorney. I thought that, um, and I'll, I'll turn over to Member Friedenbach that- We, we have I'll, advice from the city attorney that presence at the meeting is required in order to be counted okay. um, for quorum. So we have uh, explicit guidelines, um, and I can forward that memo to everyone so you can have it in your own inboxes, but um, we're gonna follow that guideline from city attorney that tells us that members have to be present in order to um, be counted as attending. Okay, I know Member oh, Friedenbach so has some questions of other commissions who've been able to. Yeah, so the differentiation there is lower is it counts towards quorum, but people can participate remotely. Um, but they're but they're they don't count towards quorum because I've seen it the police commission and I've seen it SFMTA and I've seen it the board of supervisors since this was passed um, members participating uh, virtually um, with COVID. We have guidance that we can't count you as attending the meeting unless you're in person. Okay. So uh, that attendance is what speaks to quorum. And so taking a vote um, requires quorum and attendance in person at the meeting. So, um, okay. so no, no disability or other exceptions that on that. And apologies to the public. We're just really trying to figure out all our different options here because we do have an important vote on the agenda today. And unfortunately, we do not still to this day, to this time, have quorum. Um, so at this time, I'm going to invite Director Najendra to come back up and to begin the TAY program planning uh, presentation and then we'll move into item four, which is our citywide strategic plan on homelessness. Thank you. I also just wanna add, there's no more, for the records, there's no more um, public comment over the phone. Thank you, Ivy. Happy Friday afternoon, uh, Chair, uh, Chair Williams and um, the rest of the committee. I am here to give a, I'm doing the strategic plan first, I believe, no, I'm sorry, I'm doing youth system planning first. So I am here to give you a little bit of, an, really an update of what we are doing at the Department of Home, let me introduce myself. My name is Cynthia Najendra, I use your pronouns and I'm a, a deputy director at, uh, at HSH and we are implementing our five-year strategic plan which started um, in July of this year. It was a new five-year plan. I'm here to tell you a little bit about what's happening specifically around youth system planning, some of the issues that we are trying to solve for and where we are with it, and just give you kind of a quick overview. It's not um, specifically commenting on the funding proposal, but the, the impetus for doing the systems planning is really to help make sure that when funding comes in and other decisions need to be made that we have um, some infrastructure and, 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 and some transparency around it. So, thank you for having my slides. You can go to the next slide, please. Oh, sorry, thank you. So, as I said, we have a new strategic plan. It's a five-year citywide plan called Home by the Bay, um, and it's driven by a number of strategies, but it's really meant to have racial and other inequities driving every single action area and goal in the plan. Um, and we have a number of things already underway. Some of these things that are in the plan 
are things that we have been doing, but we are really kind of expanding many of our, our inventory, our strategies, and we're really focused on system outcomes, whereas before we were looking at population goals and other things that were related to um, programmatic goals, we will still look at those things, but the plan is really driven by advancing racial equity goals and system goals. Are, is our homeless response system, is our city across all the departments and all the funding streams, are we really making a dent in homelessness and are we being equitable and actually reversing disparities? Um, the timeline here, sorry, I'm trying to look at two different screens. The timeline, um, it's just that we spent a lot of 2022 and 2023 um, in the early part of the year, just developing the plan. We included many, many um, stakeholders. We talked to almost 900 people, half of, over about 400 people who are people with expertise and experience of homelessness, and many providers. And we came before this body many times to get input. And we really wanted to make sure that people could see themselves in the plan, which is why it's 91 pages long. Um, but the, the kind of key part that drives it is that there are a number of things that are high level. And even though it's so incredibly detailed, it still doesn't have all the details around subpopulations. And so there's still some subpopulation sub planning to be done. Um, and that's really driven by some of the priorities around funding and capacity, both on the staffing side of the city and, and on the provider side. So what are the priorities for which populations? Um, just want to really highlight that the core values is a lot of, there's a lot in the plan, but equity and justice, quality and innovation, you know, we are our, our core values that are underpinning all of the strategies, but we are trying really hard at the department to make sure that we're holding these in our systems change work and culture change work. And we have a new division at the department that I lead that is um, planning, I'm sorry, performance planning and strategy. That is, we're both responsible for implementing the plan, but really carrying, and this is a, it's really a system-wide responsibility, but making sure equity, justice, quality, and innovation are actually like living and breathing in every part of the plan. And it takes, um, a, it takes a lot of attention and a lot of intentionality um, around everybody in the department, but also across our providers, across people who are participating in the system or people who can't access the system. So that's kind of just an ongoing kind of thing that drives the work that we do. We finally staffed up also in that division. So I act, there's staff, um, we have a strategy and planning team um, that, that sort of like is really responsible for some of this, but we wanna make sure that programs, staff, providers are socialized in the plan and really can see what their, what their role is in, in, advancing these, um, in advancing these goals. The five-year goals you're probably quite familiar with, I'll just, um, they're just here for your reference, but these goals um, to decrease homelessness, and that's a 50% reduction that we're shooting for in uh, five years, so that'd be July 2028, June 2028, Reducing racial inequities. This is something that we, and, and other inequities, we're really focused here on setting some baseline data this year. We wanna make sure that we are uh, including impacted communities. And so this is, our, our, our deliverable here is by early 2024 to have a baseline of data on all the impacted populations in each of these goals. So in other words, in goal one, if we're gonna decrease homelessness for, um, you know, in total population and unsheltered, what is it, what are we, what are we trying to achieve for overrepresented populations like black and African-American households, Latine households, um, and um, specifically LGBTQ, but specifically trans and non-binary households, because these are overrepresented uh, over in our system. Um, the increasing number of people exiting homelessness, that housing placement goal essentially, is not just about HSH housing placements. Eventually, we'll include data from 
other, you know, as we start to build our systems out more, that we would look at citywide um, placements into housing, so including vouchers and other placements in affordable housing. But we're right now this year focused on uh, HSH data because that's what we got. Um, supporting people to succeed in housing, staying in housing, very important, sustaining that housing and making sure, again, we're looking at the different subpopulations and preventing homelessness. We would like to break each of these down then for youth in particular. So it may make sense for youth to have a separate goal in each of these areas. It's specifically a target for youth. Having a target really does, and a time, a time limit and a, a timeline and a target is kind of essential, I think, in really getting to any real progress and me measuring that progress. Otherwise, you really are you don't know if you're moving the, the needle at all, and also you're sort of not sure what you're driving towards. And so that is why we have these strategic plan action areas that are supposed to really make sure that these are the strategies that make those goals real. The plan also comes with inventory targets. So how much shelter prevention and housing do you need? I won't go into that, but that's part of the planning that went into this plan so that we know here's actually all the interventions we need, and we can also look at if we don't get those interventions, if we don't get the things in the budget, this is how homelessness will <clears throat> either go up, go down, stay flat. We, we make sort of assumptions in our modeling, but we can at least start to tie outcomes to inventory. And so that's what's really different about this plan. This is based on what we have in our system now, what we need to achieve these goals. If there are budget items that we don't meet, then we would have to change these goals. So we knew that we had to do more planning, and that's what brings me to youth. We knew we had to do more planning around youth systems, but particularly we wanted to make sure that we were looking at what the system flow in our, in our um, uh, system was around homelessness response, but also prevention, shelter, housing. Um, these are just some housing outcomes. I wanted to just bring these up because we looked earlier at the OCO, um, the OCO placements, but this is our whole system. So this is not just things that are OCO funded. And as you can see, we, and I broke them up between like, we have different definitions for youth, so some are 18 to 24, that's kind of the federal and state definition, and eligibility for many, many programs is limited to 18 to 24, but in some of our programs, we have eligibility up to 29, so I just broke it out by that. So 18 to 29, we see 697 youth housed, and that's in the fiscal year 22-23, um, 229 youth housed in 18 to 24, and um, 25 to 29 has 160 youth. And the reason I also want to break it out is we have been sort of trying to make sure that that eight, 25 to 29 group that often gets not prioritized in the youth system or the adult system, um, and that's why we've sort of, the providers have made this very helpful, like, illuminated this issue, wanting to make sure that we are reaching that population, they're not sort of falling between the cracks. And so just wanted to sort of point out that there are this, this group that is, um, their, their sort of housing numbers are, are ticking up. Youth coordinated entry assessments, again, this is kind of, sorry, these are not very pretty charts. Um, the youth CE assessments, this is just 2022-23. It can be an indicator for how many people are coming into the system, um, but as you can see here, the way it's broken out, how many, the sort of total number of youth that have been assessed, um, and then is 1,949, and this is just year to date um, from this fiscal year. And the demographics, I'm sorry, it's kind of hard to see. The, the demographics, um, I wanted to say that, you know, the, there's, when we look at the data, transition age youth that are black are, are black are a much higher rate of representation in the Tay population. So you, you will see a higher representation in, this, in our coordinated entry demographics. So there's a 45% um, 
uh, 45% of 18 to 24 year olds are housed at, a high, at, at the rate in our coordinated entry system and they're 34% of our overall population. So we're certainly, um, we're, we're equitable and we're trying to be more than equitable. And so this is, a, there's different ways to break this data down, certainly, but this is just an example, as you can see um, by the different demographics that we're looking at this now more regularly. We're, we have a CE demographics dashboard. One of the things that we're also doing is making sure that we're gonna be doing this by program so that we can really see this and, and really trying to uh, focus on making it public eventually so that people can look at their own data and their programs and, and understand what they're doing. Um, really quickly, I don't wanna take up too much time because I don't think I had that much time, but the, the youth system planning I just wanted to touch on. So with all of this different, you know, with the strategic plan, youth system planning, we really started to see when we met with the providers over the last year, year and a half, particularly youth providers and people's lived expertise, what is the problem we're trying to solve? Do we need planning? You know, what do we even need another plan? You know, we don't want to do sort of extraneous work. There was great planning that happened in 2018, 2019. There's the providers meet regularly. So what specifically are we trying to do? And are there challenges and in, in what progress have we made? One of the problems that we that have come up in many, many um, input sessions and, and just I think we experience this at the department that you know, it's important to make decision-making, policy development, and allocation of resources transparent and equitable. And it's, it's, it's not always so. Not maybe intentionally, but if you're not a provider that goes to the community meetings or the advocacy meetings or some of the HSH meetings, you might not know how a certain proposal was developed or why, why someone was funded. We have, obviously, in the city, if it's a city-funded process, we have a, uh, an equitable process on RFPs. But there's things that we can improve along the way, and if we don't look at it in, through that lens, we won't. You know, we, we see places that we can change things, especially for new providers, smaller providers, um, and, and BIPOC-led providers. So, youth homelessness system oversight and governance is sort of the solution. That is the solution, and one of many that the providers have um, have coalesced around. So, creating a governance group that has shared decision making, that has that's represented much like the coordinated entry group that was recently created. That's representative of the providers and people with experience and the demographic populations that are underrepresented, making decisions together in, in one place. We, we get input from providers from the city, but having this group actually formalized in some way, living within our um, governance structure for the homeless system and making sure that everyone knows this is how the, you know, this is how this decision was made, people feel represented, they can participate, making participation accessible and also just really making sure that data is driving a lot of the decisions so that we're not, it doesn't always, it's really hard to communicate sometimes even when we're trying hard to do it. Um, and the idea being that this is sort of owned by the community where the city is participating as well. Um, and the progress is that we've hired, we, it was a, certainly there was some capacity issues on every level. We've hired um, staff on my team that will be doing some of the subpopulations planning. We have the CE, we just hired a CE youth manager which is really exciting, we haven't had one for a really long time. Very excited about that person they just started. Um, and um, we've, surveyed, we've surveyed the providers and we've met with the providers about what that governance structure could look like. And so there's, um, there's many examples from other communities to do it, but essentially providers have really, I don't wanna speak for all providers, but the input we've gotten is yes, we want a governance group, we want um, providers to co-chair it, and we want that to be representative of, of our homeless system that, that serves youth to set a goal and to make sure that we're a, a new goal on, on youth homelessness, and that can, we can figure out how to allocate resources, or at least inform resource allocation through that group. 
I believe, I just wanted to um, mention also that the coordinatory uh, implementation committee, which is part of our redesign, will have um, youth represented, youth with experience and providers represented. This is the group um, that has been now formalized. The COC board, the local homeless coordinating board passed a charter that will be the decision-making group for policy for coordinated entry. Um, this was a long, long process to get here, but we feel that it's much more representative of the community and the city and the community and providers are sitting on it. And you can see the breakdown of people who are on it. Largely, it's, it's largely communities. The um, different city departments that participate are on it, but over 69% of people have lived experience and it's really demographically representative of people who are, um, who are disparately impacted. Um, you can learn more about the implementation on our website, but I just wanted to mention that because it really affects youth, and there will be probably deeper system planning uh, with, with coordinated entry for youth on that group by the folks that are, are, that are members of that group. I'm gonna stop there because I feel like there's a lot on the agenda, and you may have, um, if you have questions, I'm happy to answer them. Um, I'll put myself on if there's no other members. I share the oh. Antonio. You want to I don't have a question. I just um, more of a comment. I, I really like the presentation. Thank you. And um, something I noticed that I know I we've been talking about is separating out Native American like versus Pacific Islander, which you did, and that's something I've been wanting to see in the Prop C data. So I want to commend you on that. And I was gonna bring it up when after our presentation of our data, but. I feel like I've said it so many times, I was kind of like, I'm over being the Debbie Downer. So. I should probably say it's, it's the same people making the data, so I should say that the HUD stand, data standards, um, there were new HUD data standards that came out um, a couple of months ago, and we're slowly transitioning the data to match. I'm not sure if, I think this is one of those changes, to, to match that change. And I think one of the changes was separating this out. Especially for our community, like yeah. it's super important. I will take that Super back. I think that I think that all of our data should start looking more consistent. But I appreciate the illuminating that, and I will bring that back to our team. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, thank you so much, Vice Chair. Did you have something else, Member? Uh, yeah. Just thanks for all your work on this. Um, I think a couple comments. We would love to have, um, or I would love to see, um, a strategic plan on uh, families. Um, yeah. That is a separate plan. And yesterday, we um, at the Coalition on Homelessness, along with Family HESPA, released a report, and that was one of the recommendations there. And, um, you know, there's just these huge differences in numbers between what the point in time count is, and um, which just shows a few hundred families in San Francisco Unified, which shows thousands of kids, and coordinated entry system, which shows, you know, thousands. and you know, just one agency alone serving 7,000 family members last year and an increase in coordinated entry, like we're looking at an increase in family homelessness by like 30, 36%. So it's pretty dramatic numbers that are popping up. And I think um, a big part of our work here at OCO is um, is to have that focus to go upstream and work on youth and, and um, families as well. So we'd love to see that happen. And I think, um, or I'd love to see that happen. And I think, um, um, the other thing I was just gonna um, was just gonna comment on is that um, just on the overall system modeling, um, kind of going back to the earlier slide on the which 
Propsy has funded the majority of the shelter expansion, so it's pretty significant that um, uh, that we're not having a lot of the success in those new shelters and moving people into housing. And so I feel like from a system flows perspective, um, that kind of that's going to that's going to mess stuff up in terms of what what I think your vision is, which is to have people, you know, have these short stays in shelters and get very quickly into housing. So I just wanted to kind of pinpoint that as well. Yeah. I, I, I know it's not quite a question, so I will, I'll, I'll just say that this, this flow question, and we've been trying to look at this in a way that just tells us essentially, like, what, what is, how are people flowing through? What are the demographics? And that's partially why we wanted to have a governance group come together so that we can, sometimes it's sort of not clear what really is happening. We can look at things sometimes by programs, but it's not always totally. And I will say, with shelter data in particular, and I'm not saying that this couldn't improve, but exit data can be you know, inconsistent because people aren't necessarily catching where they're going. If people are housed in our system, that usually is being captured. But we probably have work to do with our, with and capacity building is, I didn't mention that, but capacity building with our, um, with the folks who are doing this work, especially the, some of the newer, um, the newer programs, helping them sort of, us all look at things through system flow instead of just my program outcomes is something we'd like to have that youth, that, that youth group look at things like, okay, what is the flow through the system? Where are we getting stuck? Where are things like not equitable? Where do we have to put more funding? So it's not, easy to do that, but that's the sort of, I think that's the direction we want to go. So to your point, I yes, we want to be able to see how, how people are flowing through the system. And can you capture that in coordinated entry? I mean, if the, shel the shelters are not reporting and they don't know where, but presumably the person would show up in coordinated entry somewhere else. So is there a way to kind of like tag people through? It's not... Yeah, we, I think we can, we can see people in coordinated entry if they've been enrolled in coordinated entry. And certainly if they're enrolled in shelter, not all of that data is linked necessarily, okay. right? But um, if they have a certain, if they are a, one person who is going through the system in different ways, we could see how many programs they're in. So I don't want to, I should really not say what I'm, I'm not, I don't have all the details around this um, and how we link data. So I should come back with some answers around that. But I think that we, have some work to do on that to start, like whether our data systems are able to do that, but some of it we can look and make sort of some assumptions. Yeah, because I think that that was kind of like what everyone was sold on on the coordinated entry thing was this promise that we'd be able to do just, I mean, there was a lot of promises made about coordinated entry that none of them, the system didn't look anything like what was promised to the community in the end. Uh, it was a very, very markedly different system. And I know you guys are working on trying to actually reform the system and correct all those mistakes that were made in its creation. And that's awesome um, because it really needs to be done. It's just, um, yeah, so, but so as that's happening, I guess that could be one of the things that's looked at as well um, because I, I do think, um, yeah, in the end, we really just need a, a by name approach, right? I mean, we need to make sure that people are getting the help that they need, like each individual that is facing these crises, um, it, you know, right now they're just getting, like a lot of them are just getting kicked out of shelter or um, back to the streets. A lot of people are getting, you know, kicked out of supportive housing and back to the streets, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Not necessarily showing up on the eviction data, but um, 
it shows up in other ways that we're looking at short-term subsidies back to the streets i mean just this whole revolving door so i feel like that's that's a big a big part of what has to happen and i know, I know that's something you're committed to and yeah yeah and our strategic plan because there's system goals it'll at least be able to tell us a little bit more about who's coming in and who's exiting and are they sustaining housing because those are the that's how the goals are articulated but we have work to do on building out systems that can actually link data this way. Oh, thank you, Member Friedenbach. It actually feeds into what I was going to ask a question about in terms of how do we flag not only youth but adults, everyone, um, in terms of that feedback loop is when someone exits the system, how are we tracking and providing additional interventions when they enter again? And that could look a lot of different ways, you know, on the prevention side or in the shelter. Um, so I was just curious, and it sounds like we're still building out Again, with the crosstalk between different systems, um, being able to have that refinement and data to know like who's actually coming in and out so that we're targeting people and not just looking at that other level. Yeah. That's a really good question. It's the, the, if a, a person exits, uh, exits a program and, for example, enters another program in our system and does a program enrollment, we could obviously track that. Um, and it depends, um, not, it would be sort of a program that is in our one system. So if someone is coming in through an outreach team that isn't in our one system and has a different data system, it would be difficult to, to link that data. The way that this is an issue in homeless systems, I think in any community, you only know if someone is returning to your system to homelessness if they come back to the system, right? So you've touched them through outreach or shelter, they've come back and you can see, all right, they've returned. Um, other, our systems aren't linked across communities, so that, that can be something that sh would be good to know. Like, did, they, did a person go elsewhere, or did they just not come back to the system? We don't have the ability to look at that now. There are some systems to do, like the VA can track people because they have a national healthcare system, and you can see if people show up in different ways. So we've looked at VA data to see, like homeless veteran data, to see, you know, are there any trends we can kind of learn from? But our, in, in terms of our own returns to homelessness, it, it really only if we can see someone coming back. If there's a maybe a world where we are linking more data systems across the, the city and they show up in another system, you know, that like uh, we have a flag for someone who comes into the emergency room. Right now we're not, we, there's some flags, but we don't quite cap, we're not looking and seeing if that person is coming from another system. So that, I will say that it's challenging to link data systems, but it's 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 the it's going into our own programs that we have in the one system that we're the best at at seeing. Yeah, and I'm not like a huge proponent of Big Brother and all of that, but I just <laughs> think that, you know, just in terms of like you know that goal that you had of 85% is pretty high, if we're going to try and reduce like folks going deeper and deeper into the system after having that one, you know, sort of stay in the system. I think providing the the other part of it is providing that extra layer of interventions, and I don't know what that could look like, but just thinking ahead like. What is some type of program for just like you know recidivism and folks in reentry? Like, is there additional supports we can offer if we know someone is entering the system again and kind of in and out? Um, just thinking in terms of like not just on the um, data side but on the programmatic side, if there's extra support we can provide. I'll just touch on we we are doing work with the criminal justice system. It's funded by the MacArthur Foundation. This body actually gave us a letter of recommendation. Thank you. That work um, is helps us look at data in the jail system and seeing who's experiencing homelessness, who's revolving through both the jail system and um, our homeless system, and really trying to make sure that we're reducing that 
revolving door, and we can also look at disparities through this lens. So we, they're not fully, the, the systems aren't fully linked, but we're starting to look at data that way. And then, for example, create an access point. There's an access point at pretrial diversion right now where people are doing in-reach assessments on coordinated entry so people don't have to exit before they get assessed. So there's, we're looking at ways to make sure that people are not exiting and also how can we capture them before they be, become homeless and, and make sure that they're going on a pathway to housing instead of um, going back to the street. Yeah, I think that it's the hospital system and the jails, but then what about everyone else who's not touching those systems, so just thinking about, I think that's where the other data piece comes in, but not just speaking to the folks who are touching jail or touching our health systems, but outside of that as well. So that's more more thinking on that. Um, I don't have anything else, do folks? Member um, Walton? I was just gonna add that I think, um, you know, looking at success based on who stays in programs is great. I also think, and this may speak to some of what was brought up, we need to look at who leaves and whether we know where they go, whether we know where they go solely based on what they tell us, or whether they leave without saying anything. And if we at least start with those kinds of breakdowns, we can see what we know and what we don't know. Um, people are happy sometimes to leave for other placements that aren't in our system and may not speak to that to us because they're happy to leave. Um, but I also think that it's important to track how many people leave programs that we don't know where they ended up. Um, and that would be a first step towards this because there are so many systems that right now aren't linked. And the one system, as it works or improves, um, isn't still going to cover programs that aren't in the one system, which might be behavioral health placements and so forth. So um, I would encourage that to be part of it as well, and yet celebrate the success of the people who are in, the, especially the permanent placements, who have success and stay. Um, then, you know, that also may mean that we separate out who is evicted versus who leaves without us knowing. Um, and that is also another helpful way to adjust things because evictions, hopefully we've exhausted interventions at that point. When somebody leaves without saying something, we may not know, we may only know what efforts were made prior to their disappearance from that program. Yeah. Just, just saying, yeah. I think that yes. that's the kind of breakdown of, of even in the what we don't know, we could break some things down. I think that may help us understand better. I had a last thought to, or just piggybacking off what uh, Member Friedenbach said about the strategic plan for families, because I think there's been a lot of conversations about parenting Tay, and so we miss youth at those youth access points where they can't do assessments for youth and they get sent to the family system. So I think that also will kind of be more revealing for the data. And what, yes, that is um, definitely reflective of a lot of input we've gotten, and I know you all have gotten too in listening sessions, and I, one of the things that in, in our court entry redesign, and the now that this court entry implementation committee will make these decisions, is how to 
will we change with the access points, who they serve? Mm. Are they going to serve more people? Will you serve multiple populations? Um, and there's people who are representing actual access points on the, the group that, you know, one of the recommendations about sort of being more accessible to more people more of the time might look like your family and, and parenting Tay and Tay are all at the same access point. That might mean you're, you know, th that might be one way that it becomes more accessible. But right now, that's not how it works. And, and there's that sort of breaking things down um, and looking, looking at that as two different populations, we could certainly sort of dig into that data a bit more. But I know that that is an issue that has come up and that we've seen. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. I think it'll just help with the data because really those, those, should be, those numbers should be counted in the youth data as well as the family data. And the family system planning, I wanted to just say that the I, at some point uh, maybe we can have some input from this body about the idea of having these governance groups, these kind of shared governance groups that help really oversee a particular subpopulation and how that could, what are the sort of pros and cons of that and is that what we, do we want to have a similar group that does families, oversees the family system in particular, that feeds up to the bigger Homeless Commission and OCO and all the other committees, or is there an ad hoc planning process that we just get to a plan and, and figure out how to oversee it that way? Okay, thank you. Yes, thank you, Director Nijendra. And I'll put in a plug for pregnant people as well in there. I'm experiencing um, houselessness. Um, definitely want to continue moving the needle on that uh, subpopulation within families. Um, uh, Director Nijendra, did you have additional um, additional presentation? or? Do you have anything else for us? Oh, that's, I'm... You're good? Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Well, thank you for all your hard work. Um, I think we're gonna, we are going to go to public comment, but I want to thank you first, but did you have additional... I didn't know if there was a, more on the strategic planning that you wanted me to talk about. I've talked a lot. I don't have to say more, but I, that was very specific to youth, but I can... The strategic plan implementation update is not much more content, so I don't... I think we covered a lot. I feel like we covered a lot, so... And I know we're running behind a little bit. Um, okay, so we'll go to public comment. Ivy at this time? So we already did public comment for item three. It sounds like you sort of heard some components of item four, four. through so we're this. Doing public you comment for item, for item four. four. So just to be clear yeah. for the record that we were hearing item Both four um, and moving to public comment for that item. Thank you. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment in person, please line up at the podium now. Each person will have two minutes to speak. And just to reiterate, this is only on um, the citywide strategic plan on homelessness because we already took public comment for Tay Housing. So we're not, not taking, taking We took it for in this totality. Uh, actually, yes, we can because it's a separate item, Laura. Um, we can specific to program planning. They were speaking just to the budget on the unallocated program funds. So item three, public comment would have referred to the discussion and possible motion Tay Housing Fund allocation proposal. Um, the presentation on Tay program planning was a component of item three. Um, it's if you, uh, so you did take public comment on item three, which included the Tay program planning. However, it's a component of the strategic planning. So item four. Uh, yeah, this is part of the strategic plan, which is, so I'm going to take the public comment. Thank you. Um, hi, Marnie Regan, she, her pronouns, Larkin Street, and co-chair of HESPA. Um, I just want to thank HSH and all the work um, that Cynthia is doing um, 
to have a plan for youth um, and system planning as part of the strategic plan. Um, thank you for listening to TAY providers um, because Home by the Bay doesn't have um, TAY or family-specific planning, so we know that that's desperately needed. Um, I just want to also just caution against having the definition of TAY now be extended from 18 to 29. Um, so we see that now in some of the new supportive housing projects that are coming online, and we have major concern, TAY providers have major concerns with um, literally having 18-year-olds and 29-year-olds living in the same building. Uh, 18 to 24-year-olds have told us for years that they don't want to live with older adults and people who are older than 24. Um, different brain development, different stages of development. And on the other side of that, um, older youth, people 25 to 29 will get prioritized over younger youth. And essentially, these supportive housing sites will no longer be TAY housing because if you're assessed and you get into supportive housing at 28 and 29 years old, you will stay and you will be in their, they will be in their 30s and there will be less available units for people 18 to 24 who are already under-prioritized by the system. So I just want to put it out there that please, um, please, I, so I still don't really fully understand why OCO sees TAY as up to 29 and home key sees it up to 25 and then the city is 18 to 24 and it it's very it's a lot for the TAID providers to try to get their arms around my point is that in supportive housing people stay we ran the first supportive housing site in San Francisco in the nation actually Ella Street Apartments and those those the people who moved in there never moved out and so we gave the contract back to TNDC because they're adults. And so we have a concern about 18 to 24 year olds not being able to get prioritized and get um, units in these supportive housing sites because older people and they're closer to 30 will be there. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much. And this is on the citywide strategic plan on homelessness, which includes all um, populations served. So thank you. My name is Miguel again. So I wanna make two comments and one is a, when they say statewide strategic plans that we stay planning. So I really wanna see two things. For example, for the families. So for all families, homelessness, which they suffer trauma and different other issues, being homeless, being in the streets. Um, and so right now, so for a family with a with a children, uh, they qualify when they have a seven, zero to 17 years old. After when they go to 18 years old, the kids they still staying with the parents, and they don't qualify for being moving to to housing, right? So I would like to see in being more open, and changing the legislation from 18 to 21, the kids who is staying and living with the parents. One thing is, or different issues or things happen there. The youth, including the parents, the youth suffer trauma when they're being homeless. So we're housing. So all these kids, they're not ready to move into their own cells out to the real world. 
It's more difficult for them to move in out. And these kids are staying with the parents, right? To the 21 years old. If they have the opportunity, they can stay with the parents because they can now living in on cells. Doesn't matter if they go to school, doesn't matter if they're working, they still suffer trauma. They take more time for the kids to be overcome, to recover from the traumas. So it's a, for me, it's, it's really important to see in that part, so from 18 to going to 21, and that's when it's starting coming an adult. So um, for, the, for the youth, so I would like to see in two, and the youth, I'm sorry, I wanna finish my comment. For the youth, I would like to see more, like a, give you the opportunities to the youth from 18 to 24, and that's because it's the timing when the youth suffer more trauma and they need more support from us and from anybody. So the last thing I wanna mention is the families who are receiving short-term rent subsidies and then we was moved. When I say we was moved because we including everybody from the city, we're moving outside to Concord to other, other places over there. This month has become homeless again. Okay. Thank you and so then much. we That's need fine. to do something about Your this issue. Thank you so much. But I think it's really important to you guys seeing this because we have African-American youth and moms and Latinos being outside and they become homeless again Thank you. next month. Okay. Thank you so much for your comments. Thank Ivy. you. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment over the phone, please call 415-655-0001, enter access code 2664-414-0933. Then press pound and pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you will have two minutes. Moderator, at this time, do we have any over the phone public comments for agenda item four? For the records, there are no public comments over the phone. Thank you so much, and thank you to our public commenters, and thank you so much, Director Najendra, for all your hard work, and for your team's hard work, and everyone who's been um, working on the strategic plan. Um, we're really looking forward to continuing to kind of track progress and really look at some of these areas that members have brought up in terms of doing deeper dives um, and being in partnership with you. So thank you for all your hard work. Um, at this time, um, we are still um, operating without quorum. Um, we do not have a quorum at this time, so, um, we are hoping that we will hit quorum before the end of our session today, but just want to let the public know that um, we are not allowed to take a vote on the Tay housing item without quorum. Um, so we will be pr pr proceeding to item five, which is our OCO coordination item, but first I just, for Friedenbach. Yeah, just um, Director Najener, can I just ask you a, qu a question? So we weren't able to vote. These, these recommendations have been sitting in front of HSH. You guys have access to them and we had them um, at last month's meeting and at this month's meeting. Um, is there anything precluding you all from moving forward on implementing these recommendations, given that we are not a chartered authority and you guys could move presumably to implement these recommendations? I don't know the answer to that question well enough because I don't know about the, because the funds have been, I don't know if the funds have been allocated already uh, yes, they were allocated in the, yes, yeah, so we do not need to do a 
um, the Board of Supervisors is not required to do a supplemental appropriation because they have been already appropriated. So there is departmental discretion at this point? Exactly. They've been yeah. but we want to take an official stance as a body um, on the recommendations. Um, but don't want to put you on the spot I either. Sh I should definitely <laughs> not speak on this issue because I don't have the information, but I can certainly bring it back. And if there is some statement that this body wants to make that would help inform that, that decision or that process, well, I think we can individually make statements, but we can't um, vote. So I can individually make a statement to support the um, recommendations that came from the Family Homeless Emergency Service Provider Subcommittee. Um, and um, I don't know if other members wanted to as well, but I just wanted to strongly encourage you all um, to move on implementing this because um, we have, I mean, I. <laughs> There's so many kids out there on the streets. It, it's crazy. I mean, I'm seeing them every day, and um, they're in really bad shape, and we need some resources for them um, pronto. Yeah, and I think the plan's really well thought out. Yeah, thank you for that, Member Friedbach. I'll join the chorus as an individual member and just say I support the recommendations as well, and I think the urgency is definitely there. Um, and support um, what you laid out in front of us as well as the expert expertise that we've heard over several meetings now as it relates to Tay um, supports that are needed. So just want to go on record of being in support. And um, as has been said, members are allowed to make individual comments of support, but we're not able to take an official vote at this time. I don't know, Member Walton, if you want to. Well, and it's my understanding to add another component that this plan was developed with HSH's input. Um, and discussion, and so um, separate from individual support of it and our inability to take a vote, we would, I would hope that our vote wouldn't preclude HSH from coming back and saying this is what we can move on um, and informing us ahead of our next meeting. Thank you for that, Member Walton. I don't know, Vice Chair D'Antonio, if you want to add before we proceed. No, I feel like everybody said everything and in agreement. Thank you so much. And we would be welcome hearing from you, Director Nagendra, on any progress that's made before our next meeting, Absolutely. working with providers as you've already had, have been doing. Um, so thank you for all your hard work. Thank you. I will take that information back and we will respond in whatever ways make sense for the, for the committee. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. And again, just for the public, we do have a member out that is ill. Um, we are not allowed to, given the city attorney's guidance, to have remote participation only um, for ADA or for parental leave. So even if someone has COVID or has any other illness, they cannot participate remotely. So just want the public to know that. Um, but I'm very excited to present our next item, which is item five, um, OCO coordination with the Homeless Oversight Commission, as well as the Mental Health San Francisco Implementation Working Group. So I would like to welcome to the dais, um, we have with us uh, member Jamil Patterson, and we have member Holly Hammer. So welcome, and thank you for joining us. And we will be joined shortly by member Jonathan, our HOC, um, the Homeless Commission Chair, Jonathan Butler, will be joining us shortly as well, but welcome. Welcome, welcome. So we will, um, you know, the purpose of this item and why we wanted to have this at our retreat was really with the understanding that we know there's several bodies looking at homelessness in our city um, and wanting to really engage with some of those bodies around the work that's happening because there's a lot of overlap in the work that we're doing and we want to be strategic. We want to be in collaboration 
um, with these other bodies and really just to be informed about to not duplicate um, the work and to really just be informed of what other bodies are doing, um, just to strengthen um, all of our efforts. And so this is the first time that we've done this um, for OCO. Um, we've been in operation now for about three, three years and some change. Um, and I believe all the members, except for Member Walton, have been here since we first started um, on this journey. We've produced several reports. Um, we've done a needs assessment. Um, we just came out with our annual report, which you heard from Ivy, which I hope has been shared with you all. Um, but we'd just like to first hear from, from you, and I know Jonathan will come in soon. Um, we'd just love to hear about how things are going at Mental Health SF. Um, what are some of the, well, some of your goals, some of the priorities, and then some of the challenges um, in your view. And this is an informal conversation, um, but I hope it's not the last conversation that we have, and you're always welcome to any of our meetings, and you can always reach out to any of us, and especially me as the chair, um, to engage in dialogue with this committee. Um, but we would just love to hear about what's happening with Mental Health SF. Um, it's a big um, issue in our city. Um, we're seeing the crisis on our streets every day. Um, and all, all subpopulations are impacted by the mental health work. Um, so just really want to hear from you guys. So welcome. Well, I, I think, uh, and thank you for welcoming us. Um, I think um, some of our goals, some of the things that's needed is we need to listen to people like uh, Member Walton, who I consider is one of my teachers uh, at, uh, when he was at uh, HSH. He used to teach all of the peer mentors. And so the things that I recommend and oftentimes, um, you know, suggest that we implement is from my experience as a peer worker and also from some of his teachings. You know, and so there's a lot of uh, veterans that's in the field um, that we suggest that, you know, we need to listen to more and they need to be more a part of the conversation and direction. Um, before I hand it over to uh, to Member Hammer, um, there is some overlap. There's a lot of overlap, but um, I think some of the progress that's been made is um, the defining. You know, so you know, mental health, homelessness, drug drug addiction, they're all kind of being brought under the same bracket, and they all they do correlate. And so I think that helps gives a gives a compass for where we need to go, you know, because as he knows, right, um, homelessness in itself, after so long, is a mental health because it's deemed as an unhealthy way of living that you acclimate to. So already you see it, it correlates. So, you know, that's why you have officers like the office office of coordinated care because they're supposed to try to coordinate the resources. You know, so it's, it's clients and resources. I'll hand it over to um, Member Hammer. Thank you, Member Patterson. Um, so um, thank you very much for inviting us. Um, we represent the um, Mental Health SF Implementation Working Group. Um, both of us have been serving on the IWG since its inception. And, um, and as Member Patterson referred to, I think both of us have been working in the area of um, improving the health and well-being for people experiencing homelessness in San Francisco for many years. Um, so Mental Health SF was passed in 2019. Um, 
and uh, and the city ordinance, the, the aim of the city ordinance, which a number of people worked on. There was a good amount of, um, of, committee, of um, community input, input from the different city departments, um, working with the Board of Supervisors and the Mayor's Office to develop this ordinance whose um, goal was to improve the quality of services and access to services. Um, to mental health and um, and substance use services for um, San Francisco residents who um, who uh, experience who are experiencing homelessness and have um, either I'm sorry um, uh, uh, serious mental health issues and or um, substance use um, issues. So um, after the ordinance was passed. Um, the uh, Department of Public Health started working on the programming as sort of outlined broadly in the um, in the ordinance, and um, and then I think around the same time um, uh, worked with um, the our city our home um, um, uh, subcommittee um, oversight committee um, on the. Uh, specific budgeting, um, specific programming that would be supported by Prop C funding um, that was aligned with the with the ordinance, and um, and so um, and then the the ordinance also spells out that um, there should be this implementation working group with thirteen um, uh, thirteen uh, members, six of which are appointed by the board, six by the mayor, one by um, the um, one by the city attorney's office, and um, and so we've been meeting monthly, um, and um, we can tell you a little bit about our work. Um, we both um, hear updates on the on the programming as it evolves and give input um, as um, there's new um, new programming, new services on the horizon. Um, almost all of that programming you all know about. You all have been um, involved in because because a lot of it is a lot of it, but not all um, is supported by by Prop C um, revenues. So um, the um, mental health SF is um, is programmatically split into a number of different domains. So the office of and these are. What's spelled out in the ordinance, Office of Coordinated Care, Street Crisis Response Team, the Mental Health Services Center, and, um, and, uh, and then uh, residential treatment expansion or new beds and facilities as we think about. And then we sort of added in overdose response, um, even though that's not spelled out specifically in the Mental Health SF ordinance, that's a huge part of our new programmatic work in the Department of Public Health and specifically in Behavioral Health Services. Um, so we have um, given input to new programming as it evolves. Um, um, leads from each of those five domains come present to us and we give, we give input. Um, it's been, well, there are challenges, and I think both um, Member Patterson and I will speak to some of the challenges. Um, for me, the, the biggest one is sort of the, um, the cadence of our meetings, so meeting once a month for three or four hours when this work is evolving all the time, so it's really hard to time our understanding of, 
um, the landscape and then where we're going programmatically, how to, it's hard for us to time that with actually giving input to, um, to, um, to the planning. So that's, that's been, I think, um, for me, the, the biggest challenge. Um, there are others, um, but, we, um, but we would really welcome the opportunity to find ways, because there's so much overlap between our work and um, and uh, the OCO committee's work, we would we would really um, love to figure out how to how to synergize as we sort of move into the next phase. I think of both um, uh, the mental health SF work and then and then Prop C funding. Um, so yeah. So I, this is um, intended to be sort of an open dialogue, and I wanted to just open it up to folks if you have any questions or sort of thoughts in terms of how we can better collaborate between our separate bodies. I would um, welcome that. I had a question in regards to your thoughts around the street team. Um, I know there was a, a report that was um, commissioned um, recently by the Board of Supervisors around the effectiveness of the street team and just wondered if you guys had the opportunity to dive into that and what are your thoughts in terms of the street team because they are the front line. Um, just wanted to hear any thoughts and then of course open it up to other members. Um, any questions and thoughts you have as well. Um. <clears throat> My thoughts on the street team is um, is how many people know about them. Uh, I think it's I think it's definitely a great option to have, other than the police. But um, like I, I I come from working in the shelter system, so I know the street team is fairly new. But you know I doubt if you know any of the peer monitors know that option. Um, for a long time, it was just regular rele relegated to the tenderloin, which is you know another thing too. You know, uh, you know there's shelters in other places. Um, I think then they just combined with the fire department. The fire department took over the street crisis response. Unit. So I think that was you know that was definitely a, a good adjustment to make, but I think you know just the outreach and engagement. Um, as far as the different programs throughout the city, I mean, I think one thing could be educating all the peer monitors like he, like he used to do, uh, you know, that you have this option for the street team. Uh, you know, people don't know when you call 911, you can actually, you know, have that option to request a street team. But other than that, they, they do great work. I'm really that, never heard of that, and I didn't know there was any well, it's all it's all through dispatch. So they so skirt is it has it's very narrowly defined. If there's any safety thing, they're going to send the police, and so you can try to ask for street crisis response team. But I've never had any success. If the person's like in the middle of the street, for example, they won't send street crisis response team. And then the other thing that happens is that they other people want to get the police to respond, so they'll call and kind of lie on what's happening and say that there's a knife or something to get the police there. So it's kind of, um, it's we, when we had originally, you know, put that wording in the legislation in Mental Health SF, we wanted, it, we wanted it to have a separate line and it was really more about having a peer, more of a peer response, uh, maybe a little bit of clinical um, supervision, but then they told, they. You know, they, the, the, the fire department pushed to be a part of it actually at the very beginning because they saw that as like a way to expand their membership, um, union membership. 
and so they wanted to get some of the homeless dollars so that is one of the things that we're paying for i i have a little bit different perspective on having the fire department involved i think that it um drives up the cost significantly and if just from my perspective looking at prop c dollars i would rather see dollars going into beds and places where people can go than going to um fire department personnel that don't necessarily have the cultural competency and i feel like people who with lived experience who look like the folks the peers that you're talking about do a much better job and my understanding on the team is is that the peers that are there are the ones that are doing the best job so i'd rather build on that and then and not have the you know highest paid firemen in the nation using homeless dollars but um yeah but i, I you know it's um it's really um i think i think the places of coordination to um to think about um that question um when one of the things is is that there's still a little bit of money in play around acquisitions um, in the behavioral health category. And so I think as we're making recommendations on how to spend that money in the budget time, actually going in and like maybe having those conversations with Mental Health SF and thinking about, oh, there's this amount of money and then like have that be one of the places that we get input that like helps us make, make our recommendations. Um, I think the other area of coordination is that um, is if there is shifting in funding. And so, um, you know, if we wanted to make recommendations of, we think this particular intervention or this particular thing that we are trying for isn't really getting us much bang for the buck, and we'd like to see the money shifted over. And I, that's really hard to do because people are hired and, you know, it's like once we invest in something, it's like funded forever. But I do think we should be nimble about that and if because a lot of this stuff we're kind of playing with and experimenting and if something's not really working that well then we i think we need to have the courage to say look we need to shift it and we 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 should have the money somewhere else and so within the behavioral health category i think that would be great conversations to have with mental health sf the things that prop c is funding is you know the 400 beds um you know so almost all the new dph beds the street crisis response team, which is now fire department and peer, um, and then those big fancy red rigs that, sorry, annoy the hell out of me. I don't know how much those cost. Um, the coordinated care, so the intensive case management, um, and um, the mental health services center, the expanded hours. So there's two expansions. We just paid for the second one. Um, and then we do pay for the sort team. So those are some of the things that kind of like come under your purview that so it's a big a big crossover in terms of what we're funding um and so i think there is like a lot of areas for collaboration and you guys are digging down so much more um so much more on the behavioral health side than we are as a body so i feel like we could learn from what you your guys's conversations that you're having and that that could then kind of like guide us in making our recommendations yeah. Yeah, and, and we, I mean, just to clarify for everybody listening, that we are the advisory, the appointed advisory group for Mental Health San Francisco, but um, so we we don't represent Mental Health, like to speak to um, exactly what's been implemented, what's been implemented, um, the outcomes that, that, um, that the DPH is following in terms of, um, of, of targets for number of beds opened, um, uh, whether um, the intentions of the 
uh, spelled out in the legislation, like um, like better response after 5150s, for example. We're tracking that, like how um, how often people who who've been on involuntary holds are um, connected to care right after um, after leaving the emergency room or hospitalization. So we so um, I think that would be I. I think that'd be great for you all to hear about is to to go over what has been implemented to ha have a report from um, either Director Cunnins, who's also director of mental health SF, or um, or or if you wanted to focus in on one of the domains, one of the do domain leads, and exactly what has been implemented and how do we know it's working, it, or or how do we make changes if they're not like you mentioned, Member Friedenbach. Um, for the treatment beds, I think that was, I was involved in those early discussions about, um, when DPH put forward a proposal to, um, to this body about what should be funded in that uh, initial round of funding. Beds were a big thing that we wanted to be able to um, expand with. Um, Prop C um, funding, we're, we're really proud of the fact that over 350 um, beds have been opened. There's both expansion of existing programming that um, a bed um, gap analysis had, had said we, we need more of, um, but also some new innovative, innovative programs. Um, we have a new managed alcohol program, which is phenomenally successful in terms of improving outcomes for the people who are admitted into that, into that program. We have, um, we've expanded our um, psychiatric respite, our hummingbird program. So, um, so those are, those are, um, those I think would be great for you all to hear about. Um, and for our body, for the um, IWG, you know, our goal is really to um, get an understanding of what behavioral health services, what mental health SF is, is working on, like the expansion of, or the new um, facility for the mental health um, services center. I mean, Member Friedenbach, you had a lot of input about what that should look like, um, as do members of our working group. And so, you know, so we're, we're, we're giving input so that it does meet that sort of vision of a low barrier way to access care, um, to connect to services. Um, so, um, so that's, you know, it's, it's all, uh, you know, I think we're, we're all touching the thing from different places, but it, it sounds like such a great opportunity for us to coordinate and make sure we're on the same page. About it. We just need more help in the coordination. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to add to um, Member Friedemach's comments in terms of um, just the resources available piece and just coordination around resources, because I'm hearing the outreach and engagement is one piece, but then also like resources coordination. So I'm just trying to capture some of the things that I'm hearing. Um, and I'm really curious about this peer monitors uh, program. I would love to hear from our illustrious member, Walton, about that program or anyone else who... Well, that was... I, I'm guessing mostly what you were referring to, uh, Member Patterson, is that uh, while I worked for HSH, I oversaw a lot of training to all levels of people that worked, especially in our shelter system and our other emergency responses and street outreach. Um, and uh, so I can speak a little bit more offline about that, but the thing that I think is surfacing for me and having just come into this oversight committee in the last few months, I think it's very common when, when there's money available and there's need available, the first things we focus on are the concrete things, number of shelter beds, number of treatment beds, and so forth. I think what may speak to some of the issues that arise 
that as we look at how those are being utilized is then looking at how we access those, how people access those services. You talk about low threshold, we talk about who can call in skirt rather than police. Those are the things that I think require a second layer of analysis to look at what makes the most use but also doesn't overflood these services so that they become useless. Um, in terms of you know trying to somehow create gatekeeping so that beds are not unused or services are not unused, but that they're used effectively and that we make it as easy as possible for people to access them. I see that in treatment beds, I see that in mental health beds, I see that in outreach services and so forth. It's just how do we best uh, help people do that? And I think, um, as Member Friedenbach said, uh, some people who want a specific response rather than reporting what they see what they are seeing as the need they report what they think will get the response that they feel should come and i think there's ways to address that as well having worked um, in its early stages with the healthy streets outreach efforts and so forth so um, i think that speaks to it and it's not just peer education it is education across the board um, some acceptance of the fact that until we would have unlimited services, we have to be somewhat strategic in using the services that we have. While we look to add more, we have to use what we have effectively. Yes, the, um, and you know, to add on, you know, the, the peer monitors are basically uh, the people that work hands-on with the shelters. Um, but you know, people like uh, Member Walton, his education made it, made it to where you weren't just babysitting adults, where you actually had knowledge on how to work with people who had mental health problems. Um, and that can mean a whole difference in how a program runs. I mean, from the, you know, the, the intake person is not necessarily a peer monitor, but they still just, they're still just as important. Because that intake person could be the difference in a person getting help or a person being shown the door. Now, we don't need the peer monitors who work there making things harder for the client. But then also, if you educate the peer monitor and make them a referral expert, and it's not that hard to do, you know, uh, I, I, you know, I recommend every peer monitor at least have three to five referrals. Like, like, don't be the kind of peer monitor when a client comes up to you and needs help in, in whatever area, and you don't have nothing to say. You know, uh, <coughs> as Mr., as Member Walter might know, uh, my mom was uh, Mother Brown. So, like, tools I learned from my mom was she had flyers for all of the services all over the wall. So the peer monitor could just look on the wall and refer somebody somewhere. And so, you know, you, you may just have a client that needs housing, but then what if you have a client that is coming from a battered situation? That's a whole other kind of referral. You might, can't, you might can't even refer her to a place that has men, right? You know, so it's like those kind of things that, that you got to know. And then um, to what, to what um, Member Friedenbach was saying, I think, you know, that should be a question. I mean, is... Is the skirt team, I don't want to use overlap, but are they duplicating the fire department? Um, 
I have I've had different experiences with the fire department. I've had good experiences, you know, because you know uh, it's been situations where clients abuse that privilege to call the fire department and they still come. <laughs> Just in case I mean now the police is a little different. You know, somebody might have been causing a problem with the police that took three hours to come. Fire department, 20 minutes, or maybe a little more, but most of the time, 20 minutes in there. And then they're also a part of our team. So, like, they're almost a part of the shelter system anyway. So I, I do think um, that discussion is the, is the SCUR team, uh, uh, duplicating services. And these are discussions that we have on our board. Um a lot of our members are experienced in the field. You know, they, they have experience living in, you know, being San Franciscans. Some of them are nurses. We have a fireman that's on the board. I worked in the shelter system. So we had these discussions on the board. Uh, and, and then I'm going to land a point <coughs> here. But some of the main things we talked about is is, is really mapping. You know, uh, you know, from my experience, waiting lists, openings. That should be clear. It shouldn't be, uh, oh, it's a waiting list. We don't <coughs> open. And you can maybe come back at this time. Uh, the other part, what we should have been had already is a ladder system to where a person can go from sheltered to housed and employed. You know, and, and then you have to determine the ones that have mental illness that need more care before they can get to that point. And I'm not sure that's happening. I think we, people in a lot of places look at clients as all the same. And they're not. They're not, you know. Um, I've, I've, seen people, I've seen people who work jobs, live in a shelter for two years, and go unhoused. And then I've seen somebody with more mental health issues get housed. You know, and as far as accessibility, and I promise I'm landing playing here, you know, that's what the mapping is about is, is, uh, is accessibility. You know, um, at, at the job that I work at, um, our office is, is facilitated for an N.A. meeting every Wednesday um, between <coughs> 3 and 4.30. There's been a number of people come through the building and say, this is my first time coming to an N.A. meeting. And the last time, and this person was a working person. She said, I'm a functional addict. I don't want to use drugs anymore. She was crying. And I don't, didn't know where to go but your place. Right? So that accessibility needs to be there. I'll land a plane. No, thank you for that, Member um, Patterson. I was looking at um, an earlier sort of document about the, the street crisis team and just the mapping of all of our crisis services and really getting that data. Um, is super important and just want to just second what you were saying in terms of the accessibility piece. Um, I'm going to definitely not take up too much of the time, but the other members have questions or thoughts they want to share? I just want to underscore that I think as we are an oversight committee, you're an oversight committee, I think we're the ones that have to um, identify the questions we need to pose to the providers, to the city departments about what still needs to be addressed, what needs to be fine-tuned, um, and cha major change is hard, but there's also a lot that could be done with um, fine-tuning, I think, on a lot of these programs. Yeah, that really speaks to what else I was going to say around the gaps. Just want to hear from you in terms of from the data and the information conversations that have already been had over the past couple of years. Like, what gaps are you seeing? So I'm sure they're aligned with the gaps that we're seeing in the system. Um, so just curious from both of you. 
Any thoughts on gaps? Sure, I see gaps everywhere. I mean, I think um, the first thing to say from the health perspective, our, our biggest gap, our biggest problem is the shortage of behavioral health um, clinicians um, is um, we have um, um, behavioral health, we have a you know, robust behavioral health services um, division of the Department of Public Health and we have, I think, um, we touch um, this priority population in all different places, in shelters, in supportive housing, on the streets, in clinics, in specialty mental health clinics, in residential, in, um, in primary care clinics, in the jails. I mean, we, we want to provide um, behavioral health services, behavioral health care in all those areas. And if we can't keep our positions filled and filled with people who are committed to this work, people who, are, who understand the population we are serving, people who come from the communities we're serving, I think that I think that's the biggest problem, the biggest gap that we're that we're struggling. Um, and then getting down to like the specific um, program area gaps, I think definitely um, psychiatric skilled nursing. So um, that's an area for of residential treatment that, especially with an aging, um, chronically um, um, ill, chronically experiencing homelessness population. That's gonna. That's a big, big need, and I think we we um, are realizing, you know, the need for beds in those areas. I think. Uh, I mean, there there are, there are a lot of different um, gaps, that, but I guess those are those are a couple that I'll mention to start out. I think we need um, safer places for people to um, use drugs and to sober up from drugs if they're um, if they're intoxicated. We ha we have some great. Um, examples of sobering centers, two, one for alcohol, one for, um, one for other drugs, and, um, and there's, uh, you know, we need to grow programs like that to mm. give people safe places to be when they um, are using drugs. Um, I mean, I could talk for, for two hours about <laughs> um, There's a lot of needs, um, but those are just a few that I'll mention. I think it's um, gaps and barriers. Um, I think there's, um, there's, there's gaps, um, with the programs and with the sections. Like, I, I like it that, that mental health has been defined to correlate with homelessness. But, you know, one of the things that I'm not seeing anymore is I'm not seeing, like, the connection between NA programs and, and drug programs and some of the other programs. You know, like when my mom started Mother Brown's, first thing she did in its inception was bring in positive directions. Matter of fact, positive directions trained the peer monitors. You know, uh, are there NA meetings happening at the shelter? A perfect fishing uh, uh, net. Um, you have what you call harm reduction. Uh, I, I talked to somebody that worked at Glide. He's a 30-year veteran in this work. And he said abstinence and harm reduction should work hand-in-hand, hand. you know, because the, the harm reduction, a person might not want to get off drugs, so they're going to look at the abstinence like, ah, but then they get into the harm reduction, and then you start slowly 
here's why you should get off drugs. It leads them to the abstinence. Um, I remember the shelters used to meet. I'm not sure if they meet anymore. Um, did we do away with the changes system? Some of the changes system brought clarity for me because it was little things like, okay, I might be dealing with a client, but then I see notes that somebody at MSC South wrote on a client. So now there's a bit of coordination on how to deal with this client, right? Because in the changing system, you know, you pull up a client, you know, the changing system connected to uh, GA as well, right? So you pull up this client, there's notes, there's a prior history, right? So they bring this. So now we have more of an idea how to approach them. So I, I think there's gaps between the programs to where there's not enough communication. I'm not sure if they meet anymore. They need the dialogue. And I think there's barriers for the client. Um, one of my experiences, he's like one of the gems in this field, and you are a gem too. Yeah, I want to acknowledge you too, my bad. Uh, but besides the gems, you know, um, um, I get more from a client who's been through the system than I do for from, from the actual counselor. Right. You know, it's you like you know you, you got repeat offenders. What I mean by that is somebody that you know that could go to jail, could get on GA, they work their way through the shelter. Now they got housing, and that person, you no, know, they can write a book on the system. They may repeat, go to jail again, but they, now they they know how to work the system. Yeah. So if they can work that system, why can't we just examine what they did? and use it as a script. It's not a one shoe fits all, I'm not trying to say that, but we definitely need like compasses and it, it definitely needs to be like less barriers for the person that needs housing today, for the person that's homeless today. A lot of people don't know what the drop-in centers are about. The drop-in centers are about if you got nowhere to go, this is where you go, this is rock bottom. So it may be somebody sleeping out of their car, don't realize, okay, you got a car, you can go to the drop-in center and then you got this car to assist you too. You know, but the person that don't even got a car, they need to go to the drop-in center. And that's just another step to get into housing. So, you know, um, and this is why the peer monitors need to be great referral experts because the resources need to be tied, tied to the shelters, right? And, and so in accessing the shelter, that needs to be a way to get you into housing. But, but as of right now, Sometimes they can't even tell people about a waiting list. You know, like, okay, we had no, you know, okay, wait, just give me some clarity. Right. You know, and for somebody, yeah, and for somebody suffering from mental health issues, oh, that, that can just, we all got mental health issues, actually. Everybody at this table just living this life, right? So you go through some trauma, <laughs> and then um, somebody can't give you answers. It's just like, oh, shit. You know, so it's so bar you know barriers. There's barriers. There's gaps. Um, I think people need to be trained. I love how he trained us because he he gave us direction on how to deal with people who have mental health and how to handle them with care, and not get sued too. Hundred <laughs> percent. Um, I'll just add in there um, another thing that we're focused on. Oko, one of our <laughs> north stars is racial equity, because um, we know the face of homeless, the disproportionality is really the black communities that are disproportionately infected by <laughs> houselessness, homelessness. Um, just wondering if that's something that you're also grappling with um, with your body in terms of racial equity analysis, looking at the data, looking at who mental health um, is impacting in our city. 
Um, just wanted to hear from you guys in terms of racial equity and please any other members if you have thoughts um, in terms of, but that's a big North Star for us. Well, well, well I'm be honest. Um, we're a little vanilla on that, I think. You know, we kind of go through the numbers. Uh, that doesn't really speak to, like, what's happening. Um, hmm. You know, I don't want to get my, you know. But, I, well, I'll, I'll say this. I'll, I'll say this. Um, in a lot of ways, uh, people get do get left out. Um, there may be, you know, like, you know, there's residents. There's people that uh, are experiencing homelessness. They don't, they don't need to be kept in that homelessness. And then somebody that has an SRO, they also still need help too. Um, and so, for people that's in SRO, let's just let's just take people living in the Tenderloin, who are a step above homelessness. Um, there may be resources that come to the community. It might not necessarily come to the black residents. They might not even know about it to increase their life and their well and their well-being. Um, I think some black clients, uh, they kind of just get maintained in their homelessness and not really get shown the options. Uh, some examples, some good examples, you know, uh, I like it that a hospitality house has an arts program for their clients. Uh, that's another fishing system. But... Um, <laughs> without getting too deep, um, you know, there, there's a lot of keeping people in place and not really uh, sharing information about people's options. Um, people don't even know that there's funding out there for programs, uh, for certain areas and certain demographics. There's areas in the Tenderloin where the black people are at. So in this area, you may have a drug dealer, you may have a resident, you may have somebody that's on drugs, you may have somebody that's homeless, right? But I see, I see a guy, he's a resident, but he's selling food. You know, this is like a small seed to block activation, right, to, to enhance the life. Uh, some of my experience, and this was a program at Valencia, and I seen true equity. This was an SRO banquet. And uh, it was everybody from different walks of life. People from the hip-hop world that experienced homelessness. Transgender. Uh, Native American. Latinos. Right? But they're all survivors. This is how they saw this themselves. And so they were sharing information with each other about, you know, how are you coming along in, in your new living space? Uh, it's not enough of that. It's definitely not enough of that. Uh, I helped uh, uh, somebody from Sierra Leone get his immigration years back. You know, he was told by one of these immigration programs, our service is not for black people. Like, I literally, no, I was told this with him, right? And I'm like, at City Hall, when I see y'all just say it's immigrants, right? 
You know how he got help was because just happened to have a conversation with Jay and Kim, and she made a call somewhere, and then they jumped on the ball. And, and the lawyer agreed to, you know, to, to take his case, uh, you know, pro bono. So, yeah, um, without really getting too deep, yeah, I, I think, you know, black people are being uh, sustained in, in their problems. They're not being shown the options um, that may be out there. They're, they're not uh, open to, like, funding, a little bit of funding that can help them activate their community. And then there, there is no, uh, like, grapevine type of communication system. So, you know, black people depend on other black people who've been through the system. Well, thank you for that. And a really quick comment about nativity. This is a conversation that needs to be had more. Um, I know at UCSF we've been talking about it because folks make that, that bias around black folks and, and immigration. But, you know, the black diaspora, uh, you know, there's not even sort of even that checkbox offered. I'm for immigration. Yeah. So, I mean, so immigration. Folks come from Nigeria. We're coming from Jamaica. So it's, it's like good. a whole awakening that needs to happen around nativity. Um, but I'm sorry, Holly. Yeah. Oh, I, I was just going to add um, an answer to your question that um, we, uh, so those key performance indicators I mentioned, the metrics that we're following, trying to get to outcomes. Um, so follow up after 5150, um, wait time for um, 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 ICM for, for um, case management programs um, and, and the other uh, um, metrics we're following. So we, when when the when the data is presented to us in IWG, we get a racial breakdown, um, and so we can we can see where the disparities are, where they're worsening and stuff. I think where where we're not quite getting to is diving into the areas where we see the disparities persist, mm -hmm. the inequities persist, and really diving into that's a problem, um, and, um, and, and why does that problem persist? Like, why programmatically do we continue to miss um, this population, usually the black African-American population? I want to just um, give um, respect to our first chair, Dr. Monique Lassar, um, was our first chair of the IWG, and I think she um, set the tone for, the, the, um, for our, um, our group to always be asking those questions, those hard questions of if, you're, if your numbers aren't getting better in this area, if those disparities persist, then keep asking the whys. Why is that? Well, if that's the case, then why haven't we done a better job programmatically to address that? That and um, and so I think it's you know we, we def definitely I don't think have made enough um, headway. I think I think the the area where we have the most stark and alarming and and pr probably very good hard data is in overdose deaths, hmm. and um, and the numbers are you know that that we first saw broken down by race. Um, were uh, just staggering. Um, I think when we uh, when we first saw that huge jump in overdose deaths in San Francisco, it was something like 4.2 times the rate of overdose deaths among Black and African American San Franciscans um, compared to other racial groups. And um, 
and lots of work going into thinking to, to talking to the community, to looking to see where those deaths are happening, how can we intervene? But I don't, I don't think we've, I think we're, we're not making a dent in, in that disparity and that's the one that just, you know, no, nobody can live with that. We can't, we can't live with being in a city that has that kind of disparity and so really continuing to go back to community, go back um, and talk to people like, figure out once we, when somebody survives an overdose, when there's a non-fatal overdose, we follow up with them to find out what, what works in terms of intervening for those people. That's the work of SORT and our, and our post-overdose um, team poet. Um, but hmm. yeah, I, I, I'm, um, I think there are still as many questions as answers, I'd have to say. Member Friedenbach? Yeah, um, Ivy, what was the number on the, our behavioral health outcomes on African-Americans on the strategic plan you just brought up? Yeah, I just wanted to, so has, um, has there been progress in placements um, post-5150 and has there been in progress place? in wait time for ICM? Um, so for, um, for 5150s, um, there, the I was actually just looking at the dashboard, and we can send you links to the dashboard. Oh, great! To see those. Um, I'm. I don't think there's a trend yet down. It's a little bit up and down, and we probably have data only for the last like year, maybe a little bit more. I don't think they're, they're. Um, well, we good compared to the, um, to the budget legislative analyst report that was done in. I think 2019 that showed the numbers of people uh, that were broke it down by housing status overall and homeless yeah. that and yeah, I mean, without any services post 50. I, I guess I would say that um, that uh, I'm I've been working on data dri driven improvement for my whole career, like uh -huh. the data and looking at it really closely and figuring out where, how to improve. Um, I feel like we're just getting the data that we need. Like we're pretty early in this process now. I'm talking about the, from the DPH point perspective, and um, and now we have to dive really deeply into the data that we're seeing in order to set some targets and see some improvements. So I don't think we're there yet in answer to your question, um, Member Friedenbach. But we are getting good data now, which is which is great. I was gonna. Um uh, just really quick, I wanted to put in a plug for the health access points. I don't know if folks are familiar with that. And there's a black African-American health access point that's being led by Rafiki Coalition. Um, so I know there's probably some collaboration that could happen there really for this piece. But I mean, if you look at the yeah. dashboard, I mean, right there, I mean, that is just mm. 65 in just October alone. Uh, yeah, just the access again, you know, um, there's a mental health uh, clinic in Bayview, I think it's still there, uh, one block ahead of Martin Luther King Park. Uh, a lot of people don't know about it. <laughs> I mean, that's the one for the black people, right? That's where you have, uh, that's where I brought uh, the client that I helped get uh, his uh, immigration, you know, because he, he had to go to see a, a psychiatrist. So that's where I was able to find him help. But, uh, you know, you got South of Market, you got West Side. People are familiar with West Side. Uh, but there's still a lot of unfamiliarity about the mental health clinics and where they're at, where they're located. You got Soma. Well, I mentioned Soma, but, yeah. 
Well, thank you for that. And I'm gonna open it up to the committee before I take public comment. I apologize, um, Chair uh, Butler cannot join us, um, but we'll continue this conversation. This is gonna be the first of numerous conversations. I think as more data becomes available, I know the commission itself is still coming online and still um, gathering their data as well. But I just think that there's so many opportunities for robust collaboration. Uh, just some of even what was just shared today, just in terms of learning about uh, the option when you call the 911, um, that's something I didn't even know <laughs> myself. Um, and I'm sure that that information needs to be more broadly shared. So I think the more conversations we have, knowledge is power. And for us in these leadership roles, I think it is coming upon us to spread that information and be in conversation with each other. Um, so I really appreciate a lot of the information that's been shared, but I'm gonna turn it to Ivy. Yeah, um, just to answer your question, uh, Member Friedenbach, the mental health client outcomes, that was the one that was unavailable um, in our report, yeah, and we do link to that dashboard that we just shared as well as a few other ones for like sort and skirt, um, but that's, that's a future reporting goal, yeah. <laughs> Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. I do want to lift up too, like the black mental health support piece, um, just really lifting that up in our work um, because I think it's just, it's really needed it, but just with the point around um, the longer stay that you have outside and on the streets, that that's leading to the mental health conditions. And if we know that black African-Americans are the largest population being represented as houseless, I mean, that need for mental health support, very clear, um, and just needing an increase in support for that. Um, I really would love to, again, learn more about not just the training components of the peer monitors program, but just to really do more, even more so of a deep dive on that program, as well as continue to read some of the information about the street crisis response team. And um, yeah, and to Member Friedenbach's point about the involvement of the fire department and outcomes, just to see how folks are feeling about that first response um, piece. Um, and I just was curious about connections to care after the emergency room, but also connections to care from the street, um, just those linkages and just seeing kind of a more data on linkage, how that's happening. Um, and of course, you know, just um, cultural sensitivity and responsiveness. I just think it's really key, um, particularly when we're thinking about substance use disorder and other things in terms of stigma. So that was gonna be my last question was around stigma and where your body is around sort of looking at how do we reduce the stigma? Um, particularly in the black African-American community because coming from that community, there's been that stigma um, of seeking out care. Um, and so just wanted to hear from y'all on that in terms of reducing stigma around mental health support. Um, hmm. That's a hard one, I mean, because you know that the, uh, the society's got to work on itself. I mean, um, I can't control how an individual has been uh, condition in their life. So if their inclination is to grab a purse when they see me, I don't know what to do about that, right? But, um, so they need, that's their mental health, they need therapy on that end. But what I will say is, it starts with not looking at everybody as the same when you see a group of people. Uh, it starts with uh, realizing, you know, we gotta define what mental health is. Like every single human being, they live long enough, they're going to have mental health, right? I mean, you know, it's, it's there. That's, this is why for certain corporations, they're assigned to psychiatrists. So I say that to kind of make a left turn or right turn. <laughs> but, you know, I think something to add 
and it may sound way out of the box, but it's kind of being implemented. Is uh, you know, just, there are artists that are homeless. You know, there's singers and musicians. You know, let's let's start looking in that in that direction. Um, um, I I uh, helped some people who stay in the L's who struggle with homelessness, but they became their residents. Helped them produce a rap video. It's on YouTube. Powerful rap video. Arts Commission, uh, not the Arts Commission. Arts Commission is by the Tenderloin too. Empire Records is by the Tenderloin. Even if, you know, even if somebody's homeless, right? You never know, like what they know. Like, like um, a Scary X, legendary rapper out of Oakland. He's he's be he bees in the L sometimes, right? So you know, I think you know, like art. You know that that that. Uh, that arts building, that uh, hospitality house runs, it's a lot of mental health right there. You know, like they, people get to draw for their therapy. You know, I, I would say, you know, and it, like I say, this is a left turn, but I would say uh, bring the chest back. Yeah. <laughs> you know, bring the chest back somewhere in, in the L's. That was like great interaction. I don't even know if it was ever a fight. You know, like, why did you take that away? Uh, and, then, and then other than that, you know, as far as like just. Civic Center. <laughs> Got to pay for them. Oh, man. Oh. Accessibility, right? You know, but, you know, other than that, I, I would say, you know, we need teachings like his, um, like really how to care for people. Uh, like people should, you know, people really should know, like, I mean, well, the first step is just not looking at everybody as the same. That's what I you know, but other than that, I really don't know how to cure somebody's racism, right? I mean, <laughs> I think the only thing I'd, I'd add, I, and I don't think our group has really talked about stigma. I think it's a great question. I'm a huge believer in integrating mental health care, mental health services, um, substance use services into all of our health services. So you, you go into a hospital bed, you walk into a prenatal visit, you go see your regular doctor about your diabetes, and no matter where you touch our health system, which is huge in this city, we're everywhere, somebody's going to ask you about your mental health. Somebody's going to ask you if you um, are, using, are using drugs or using alcohol, smoking, all those things. And I mean, that, that's my vision, is that it's so integrated that it becomes to be destigmatized. That um, you know, when I was pregnant 25 years ago, maybe I would have looked sideways at, at at my midwife if she had said, "Are you using drugs? Are you smoking?" Maybe I would have been like, "Are you making judgments about me?" <laughs> now, we want to normalize that. We're asking every single person who comes in for prenatal care. We're not we're not pointing the finger at you. We're we're saying this is a normal thing, is to. Um, is to have mental health challenges at all points in life. And, um, and so that's something our, our whole person integrated care team, we opened this beautiful, gorgeous new health resource center, the Maria X um, over at 7th and uh, between Mission and Market. It's gorgeous. It's amazing. It, it, just having such an incredible state of the art 
um, building to serve people experiencing homelessness and offer dental care, offer podiatry care, offer behavioral health care. It's all, it's all there, and I think that's what we have to be doing is acknowledge the people have diabetes and people have schizophrenia, and we're here yeah. to help them. I would say in that too, just how do we think about the CPS piece of that as well? Because I know that just working with pregnant folks like yeah. that, the stigma around talking about mental health but and also talking Is about you're gonna lose your baby. cannabis, yeah. whatever have you, while pregnant, it's, you know, that fear of like losing your baby. Yeah. And it's a real justified fear. Especially um, if you're an African American. Especially if you're black African American. So how do we especially. think about that too? Um, and I don't know if that's come up in your conversations, um, just sort of that piece around owning sort of what you're going through and then is that going to enter into, you know, whether that be the CPS system or police or who comes involved or gets involved, that can lead to worse outcomes. And so um, I'll end with that, but I want to open it up. I think, I mean, do we public comment? I just don't want to miss if we need to do that. Oh, no, I'm not going to end, end but I was wanted to open it up to the committee first before taking public oh. comment. Um, uh, I think this last stigma conversation, it's the first thing I thought about, but I'm glad you brought it up because the issue is how do we create a system that asks people what do you want and what do you need and assess also what they need that they might not know without saying, and how did you get this way or why do you do what you do? And, that's, and I think that's also a great way to approach, not solve, but approach racism. Because if I'm focused on your need then it doesn't matter who you are and what color you are and what gender you are and sexual orientation and so forth. Um, so I think that that's an approach we could all work at. As, and, as, and again, I will put it on our backs as an oversight committee. We're the ones that have to really ask that question. So thank you for bringing up the stigma. Thank you, Member Walton. I'm gonna go down the line. Anything, Vice Chair D'Antonio, Member Friedenbach? I think we're all a little sad about our lack of being able to vote on the Tay housing today, which is a real bummer. And um, just for the public, um, we really, really wanted to make that happen today, but unfortunately we did not have quorum. But I wanna thank our guests for all your commitment, for all your service. I've seen you over the years in many different fronts. So just thank you for being social justice warriors and thank you for being in partnership with us. And we're gonna continue to do this good work, um, and thank you. I, 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 I will say this, and I'll be very, very short, but um, I, I, I like our board. Uh, our board comes, and I don't know if everybody's originally from San Francisco, but we come from a San Francisco perspective. And, you know, that's above the race and everything. You know, a real community San Francisco perspective that has a grips on how the city functions and how communities operate. So I think that's what makes our board very special. And we got different ethnic groups on the board from Asian, European to Latino, um, and I'm black, so, or African. So. Awesome, thank you so much for your work and thank you to all your, your colleagues and your members in the work they're doing. Um, with that, Ivy, can we see if we have public comment? Members of the public who wish to provide public comment in person, please line up at the podium now. Each person will have two minutes to speak. For the records, there are no in-person public comments. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment over the phone, please call 415-655-0001, enter access code 2664,
414-0933, then press pound and then pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. The system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you will have two minutes to speak. Moderator, do we have any public comments over the phone? For the records, there are no over the phone public comments. Okay, thank you so much, and thank you to everyone who's joined us. We're not officially called to order, so there's no need to make a motion to adjourn, but just really want to uh, highlight that we want to make have that vote, our official vote for the Tay housing item in the new year. Um, and we do have, I believe, commitment from HSH to start to move towards implementing some of the, the recommendations they've heard from providers and from us in our individual comments. Um, so with that, I just want to wish everyone a beautiful holiday break. I can't believe that it's December and we're entering into 2024. This year just flew by. Um, and I know we're going to have plenty of work to do in the new year, but I hope everyone gets time for rest and rejuvenation and time with your loved ones. Um, but with that, we are going to end this, this meeting, this retreat, part meeting, part retreat um, today for OCO. So thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.